The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. See myself in the desert sun. See myself driving with my son. Going out to find his mom. Drop him off and then I'll be gone. Here we are now in the land of Paris, Texas. A very slow burn but full of passion, yes. Ride all night and we ride all day. When I see my ex-wife, I wonder what I'll say. Getting very confused. It's quite a mess, but I'm quite amused. It's a crazy mashup that works somehow. No one rocks the cock like Krista now. Mm-hmm. Here I am now watching Southland Tales. Richard Kelly's film that's kind of off the rails. Some might hate it and some might laugh. Talk about it on the Movie Club Podcast. Paris, Texas, and Southland. Okay, welcome everyone to episode number 24 of the Movie Club Podcast. An informal book club-like show where a bunch of bloggers from around the web gather together to talk about two films. Uh, Today's two films are... Probably the most disparate films we've had on a single show. Ostensibly, they're linked by an amnesia theme, although neither of them lingers on the amnesia theme. Uh, One of them is a lengthy sort of myth-making look at America that is absolutely restrained and low-key. And the other is an implosion of American culture, which is anything but low-key. The first film is Vim Vendor's. Paris, Texas. The second film is Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. And uh, joining uh, me, uh, who unfortunately is assumed hosting duties, <laughs> and I, so I apologize in advance because uh, neither Sean nor Andrew are with us tonight. But uh, joining me is uh, Jay Teal. How you doing? <laughs> Teal. <laughs> this is why I don't do this job. I talk and talk and talk, but I don't intro well. Jay Chill from Film Junk. Go. How's it going, guys? Great. <laughs> I'm Jay Teal here in person. <laughs> uh, also uh, from the Directors Club, Jim Laskowski. Hello, everybody. I am here. And <laughs> also from the Directors Club, uh, Jim's co host, Patrick Rapol. Please call me Patrick Turquoise. Um, that's my Christian name. So good to have you for the first time, uh, Patrick. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's um, be fun. Yeah, we've always been trying to mix up uh, the sort of rotate more with hosts. So it's nice to be bringing in a lot of new folks and mixing it up in the podcast community. So uh, we decided we're going to start with um, chronological order uh, with uh, Paris. Texas. And it's interesting because I think a long time ago when we used to have a poll on the Movie Club podcast website, um, there was, I think you put it up, Jay, to be Mm -hmm. put there. And then when we were looking for a film to pair Southland Tales with 
on the last show, I might have been right in the middle of the show, uh, uh, Jim mentioned it again. Mm -hmm. So um, I assume both of you had seen the film before. Does anyone want to set up the film? Jim? Oh, sure. I'm more than happy to set up this film. It's it's something I'd seen, oh man, a, a long, long time ago. I'd say like uh, maybe the mid '90s, and it really, uh, really affected me back then. And upon subsequent viewings, it just keeps getting better and better. Uh, Vim Fenders is a very <laughs> interesting filmmaker. He's he's made uh, something like Wings of Desire, which is another really transcendent piece of work. But this is um, written by Sam Shepard, and like Kurt mentioned, it's a um, incredible portrayal of Americana, and it's basically uh, all about you know wandering through uh, you know this Texas backdrop, and his you know Harry Dean Stanton is in this movie first of all, and it starts with him just wandering around in the desert. And, you know, it seems like he's got this aimlessness to him and he's not sure who, we're not sure who he is. He seems, you know, he doesn't have any identity whatsoever. And he happens to collapse and winds up in the hospital and the doctor finds out who he is and contacts his brother, played by Dean Stockwell. And from there, we learn more about, you know, the fact that he's been missing for, I believe, four years or something along those lines. And he has a young son, an eight-year-old. Um, <clears throat> so then, you know, they sort of have a reunion, and we see scenes of, like, home movies that sort of reconnect the two of them, the the young son and Harry Dean Stanton's character. But um, he's, he's also... The, the son has had surrogate parents... Um, Dean Stockwell and his wife have been taking care of his son and they've grown fond of him, of him as well. So, you know, after <clears throat> he comes to terms with, you know, this, the current situation that he's involved in, Harry Dean Stanton sort of has this revelation that he wants to find the boy's mother, who they haven't had a relationship for quite some time. So... From there on, we sort of have a road story, which Vim Vendors is kind of famous for, especially a lot of his earlier films. And, you know, it takes on almost, it's almost like three different movies kind of smashed together in a really effortless way, in a very poignant way. And I feel that it might be, you know, long, and certainly it has, you know, a, a gradual build over time. It's a slow film, but I think it's one of the most haunting movies. Like when I first saw it, I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And every time I see it, I find more and more to appreciate about it because I'm growing fonder and fonder of minimalist films with very simple stories that play out, you know, in, in very simple ways. And yet it has this amazing cinematography. It has, um, you know, a lot going on, you know, not just with the characters, but I think what it has to say about, um, you know, identity, male sort of identity, sort of trying to figure out 
um, what his place in the world actually is. Um, there's there's a lot more to say about it. I just I feel, you know, if there was a movie f- that was made for me in terms of like how it's put together, the structure, the cinematography, the the amazing score by Ry Cooter, I I I get more and more enthusiastic about this movie every time I see it. To where it it's kind of always lurked in my top ten favorite movies of all time, but every time I see it, it just keeps getting pushed up more and more. And um, the uh, the Blu-ray, especially, really um, seeing that you know in, in that format, really made it special for me um, upon a recent rewatch. So um, yeah, I just I just think it's a, an incredible film, and I, I, I'm eager to hear everybody's thoughts on it. Jay, you you've seen this before, have you not? Yep. Um, I mean, I'm I'm pretty much. Uh, in the same spot as Jim with this, it's it, it's definitely one of my top ten fi- uh, films of all time. Um, I saw it more recently um, within the last few years, mm-hmm. but especially with a second viewing, um, I absolutely love this film. It's to me, it's a, a perfect film. Uh, the performances are are amazing. Um, like Harry Dean Stanton is obviously great, but Dean Stockwell in this is amazing. Um, he's just very understated and, and just, you know, for, for people who might recognize him from the more quantum leap side of things, um, (laughs) he's, he's brilliant in this. And, um, the cinematography is great. The music is great. The story, um it's both sort of um heartwarming but um really um painful to watch as well which is it's a very nice mixture yeah. um and yeah it's I, I absolutely love this film unfortunately for me i i feel like it's a, a movie that I, I don't know that i have a lot to say about it and that I would want to say a ton about it. Like it's, it seems like one of those films that you just kind of, it's best to just let it be. Yeah. Something like a, maybe a Terrence Malick movie too. And, and how it, it really plays on, it's, it's, it's hard to articulate a feeling that you have while watching this movie, because I think it's so focuses on the, you know, the emotional state of the character and that's not always something that he can articulate clearly i mean towards the end obviously we could get more into that about his monologue but yeah i think the well, use of color in this movie is really spectacular as well i mean especially after seeing it on on, on the blu-ray like i said i just was blown away even just when like dean stockwell's at a gas station and it has that green hue mixed with the the red you know sunlight in the background i just like i want to put every frame of this movie on a on the wall you know in an art museum i just love it so much you should bring some of them to art class yeah (laughs) that's a good idea so patrick is this your first time with the film or have you not not only was this my uh first time seeing paris texas this was actually my first vim vendors movie um, and I just looked up my first uh, movie written by Sam Shepard that I've ever seen. Mm. So um, he's written quite a few. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, I've seen a couple he's acted in, but uh, have not seen any of the ones he's written other than this one. And uh, it was it's kind of interesting watching it because uh, my just I guess the way my brain works, I kept trying to put it in boxes. Um, it, it starts of of course Harry D. Stanton wandering through the desert and then sort of stumbling into a gas station. I'm like, oh okay, because I I knew nothing about the movie before I watched it, so. Um, he wandered to gas station. I'm like, oh, okay, it's going to be sort of a subversion of Western stuff with the stranger coming to town. And then that is quickly dropped. And then it's uh, his brother comes to pick him up. And then suddenly it's like, oh, okay. And he's kind of quiet and weird. And he has the the brother has to deal with this road trip. I guess it's sort of a Rain Man thing. And then, of course, they get there <laughs> quickly. And then that's no longer the and uh, and um, Harry Dean Stanton's character starts uh, talking more. Um, so he's no longer quite quite seeming, I guess, so autistic or whatever I thought he was. And I kept kept trying to put this movie in a box, and it keeps defying it. Eventually, I, I guess I and I got all all of uh, an hour and fifteen minutes in before I sort of realized, oh, I just got to let this movie do its own thing, and uh, it's not going to follow any conventions, and it's the store, and it's going to go wherever the story goes. And I really respected that. I really liked that. You know, uh, instead of forcing these characters to have moments that would fit, you know, a strict structural plot or storyline or whatever, you just, it's just sort of watching these characters in this weird, awkward situation and struggling to deal with it. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it was a really amazing movie and a beautiful movie. And, of course, all the acting's great. Um, well, mostly what I, I would love to talk to you guys about uh was would be the the ending which i mean we can we can probably get to because again while the movie keeps going where it's going without um you know without you ever really knowing what's going to happen next where it eventually ended up kind of confused me um so uh i mean i think the final scenes uh are like the best acting in a movie that's full of great acting but unfortunately i'm not exactly sure what they're in service of um so uh yeah i mean watching this movie it was really great uh until the very end in which case i was a little i guess confused would might be the word okay um well this is my first time watch of this movie and i i've seen most of vim vendor's other filmography i don't know how this one eluded me for so long um Especially considered, if you if you read around, it is widely considered one of the best films made in the 1980s, which admittedly is a weaker decade for film, unless you like the the the, the blockbusters, which tend to, uh, you know, not always be bucketed in, in these sort of types of, you know, criterion or whatever type lists. But it, anyways, um, uh, and when it finally came out on Criterion uh, a number of years ago, that the cover the um the sign on the the cover it is for me hands down bar none the best cover that criterion has ever put on a dvd um so there's that and someone lent me the dvd and i don't know who lent it to me so it's kind of <laughs> a I, I i went to my coworker who we usually trade, trade criterions with and i and i said oh, i i just finally watched after having it for half a year paris texas uh and it blew my mind. Uh, I'll bring it back in for you. And he's like, I 
haven't seen that film and I don't think I own it. So did you lend this to me, Jay? Cause did, did, or did you give me your regular DVD after you got Blu-ray? I have no idea where I got this movie. Nope. Um, okay, <laughs> the, well. The mystery continues. It just yeah. wandered into your life out of nowhere. How interesting. Perfectly, yeah. perfectly. Um, so, I- Internet, if you, if, if you lent me uh, Paris, Texas, please let me know. Um, <laughs> well, you have but, to be able to identify it because uh, we're not just going to give it to anyone who claims it. <laughs> that's right. That's true. You gotta you gotta set up the story and jog my memory because I apparently have some some level of uh, memory loss around this movie. Amnesia, but, maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, Harry Dean Stanton's one of my favorite actors, um, and I think after watching this movie, this is the best performance I've ever seen him give. I mean, he's all over the place. He he can do all sorts of different characters, but I've never seen him do anything quite like this guy and. Uh, that was. Um, Have you seen One Magic Christmas? One Magic Christmas, no. Well, you got to see that. What he is play, it? He plays an angel. It's a Disney movie. Oh no way! Well, that's I, him and Disney. <laughs> a very I don't similar see, performance. <laughs> I don't see him lining up with Disney, but uh, I guess my 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 connection to him was always um, Repo Man. Oddly enough, in, no, an Alien. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and, and he's I think. Uh, the first one to go. Um, I never mentioned it at the top of the show, but this will be like spoilers wall to wall, even for movies that oh, are yeah. in the show. Um, but uh, yeah, as this movie progressed, I think I had a very similar experience to uh, to Patrick thinking that I kind of knew what the movie was until it kept um, going. But I think the Western is an apt... At the end of the day, sure. uh, the Western is kind of the apt place to put this movie it, it reminds me like of something like uh calling like the history of violence uh the the david cronenberg movie a western it just it has that sort of digression on what is manhood and 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 all these things and the way it mulls it over particularly with family is what really um really struck me I well mean, it it's it, it's based off of the searchers isn't it i don't know if it is, is. It? um hmm. After I watched it, I read the Roger Ebert's great movies review. He mentioned that. Uh, but, I mean, it does have sort of a uh, – I mean, The Searchers is about them you know, looking for a child. And then when the child gets back, when they bring the child back home, it, you know, John Wayne, there's that famous shot where John Wayne isn't quite there. Maybe that was just a connection that Ebert well, made and it wasn't something the filmmakers did. But It, it is an interesting connection because yeah. it's also like a, a guy that – fails to properly assimilate into normal domestic society. I think that's what the searchers, well, at least how the searchers ends. And, and oddly enough, that's how this movie ends in, in its own um, roundabout way. But the one thing I should mention is um, when Natasha Kinski finally comes into the movie, boy, does the movie ever change tone. Uh, it becomes something completely like it's a pretty much an all boys movie other than Dean Stockwell's wife for the first part of the movie and it radically radically shifted for me and and I as much as I liked everything else in the movie the the 20 minute or whatever unbroken across the mirror speech that um Harry Dean Stanton gives Natasha Kinski and it's mostly her facial reaction shots is what sealed the deal that I absolutely fell in love with this movie oh, yeah. and, and, and how it goes about its business. Yeah, so that's my encounter. Uh, what do you want to talk about first, guys? 
Well, Patrick, what what was your um, issue? I, uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't even maybe even call it an issue because I feel that it's more just me not grasping it. But, like, I feel like the ending of the film is a, that's a bad idea of of this this woman who is some kind of stripper slash sex worker, like raising this child who has been taken from the people who he knows as his parents. Like it, and I'm not sure. And I didn't, and it did not feel like to me that, that the movie was asking me to, to recognize that. Like, I felt like the movie wasn't saying that it was, I feel like the movie played it as if that was a happy ending or, I mean, a bittersweet ending, of course, for Harry Dean Stanton's character, but but a happy ending for the mother and reunited the reunited mother and son. And I don't and I feel like this is one of those movies where you you say what happens after the film ends. And it's like it's like like, uh, one of my one of my favorite jokes is like if you if there was ever a real sequel to Greece, it would just be about this loveless, horrible marriage. (laughs) And like if, if there's a sequel to this movie, it would be about this unfit mother and this who barely knows her son, like, (laughs) and uh, who has been, who without really, I don't feel having a grasp of what is actually going on to have been taken from people who he has considered as parents for most of his life. (laughs) Oh, I, I never, I never took that reunion to be a permanent one. When I watched the movie, I I looked at it at the point of view of, I mean, ultimately the, I, I, from Perry Dean Stanton's point of view, the movie is his failure to re-engage or at least his growing ability to re-engage with life instead of looking at it through, uh, well, it's all the billboards, which is what his brother does, and then the home movies and then through the screen of the of the um, peep show uh, thing. So it's sort of him finding a way back to actually connect, which he doesn't in the movie. But yeah. I think in a surrogate sense – because the mother at, at early on in the film, uh, the sorry, the mother-in-law, Dean Stockwell's wife, says that uh, Natasha Kinski's the, the biological mother, was sending photos or get, receiving photos and then didn't want them anymore and sort of cut off contact and just sent money. And I thought that this was Harry Dean Stanton properly connecting mother and son, um, not in a now they will live together in Houston, but at least a proper connection and maybe he'll end up back with um dean stockwell and 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 his wife uh Hmm. in some sort of relationship where the mother is properly involved um now i don't think he's going to be involved he right I, i think the movie has very interesting things to say about the american family and that uh you know how broken american families can be and how they can kind of work some positive end but they can never really be the nuclear family after all the sure shit goes down i i, I thought i, I don't want to politicize or or, or or whatever the movie i don't think it's that type of movie but i do think that it it chews on these subjects and i have no idea because you're just coming out of the whole wave of feminism in the united states when this was made right so i imagine there were a lot of women that just sort of took off and there's a lot of um well, Cassavetes, right, who uh, made a couple of these types of films and uh, cast uh, a lot of these actors, I think. It does kind of turn into a little bit of a, you know, just with having the, the, the confrontational monologues between the two of them, between the glass, that is, 
you know, very dialogue heavy. It's very Cassavetes and that they're emotionally coming to terms with their past and who they are and, you know, their broken relationship and everything. But I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more with you and the ending Kurt. Cause I, I wasn't, I guess you can have a logical objection to the idea of, you know, uh, the, the mother taking care of his, uh, of, of her son now because of where she's at, at in life. Um, and you know, I was not, not a hundred percent sure, you know, why he chose to just say, you know what, I'm just not going to be a part of this at all. I'm just going to, you know, hit the road and figure out my own shit, I guess, you know? And I mean, I know that's, that's kind of the, what you come to expect from, you know, something like the searchers, because that's, you know, he's meant to roam the earth alone, maybe. And he's not meant to be a part of that family unit or not, or, you know, something along those lines. But I wasn't, I, I optimistically, I guess I would hope that, you know, he, he, the, the son would re- reunite with uh, Dean Stockwell and, and his wife. I had gotten the impression that they, that they were going to, because the kid, uh, at some point it comes up, how long are they going to be gone? And Dean, um, Harry Dean Stanton says it, de- he, it depends. Um, and then when they, there was the, the chance that they were going to miss, um, tracking her down. And he says that they'll have to wait a whole extra month. Um, just the way he's talking about time as though they're there to accomplish a task and then go home. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's what I got from it. But I mean, I don't think, um, with, you know, the, the, the stuff they're going through in this movie, I don't think anyone's really thinking about what would be best. I think they're more thinking about just resolving their own, personal shit i mean obviously he feels guilty for um splitting everything apart and um the mother sort of uh being away from the son as a result of his actions and and it, it seems like his mission is just to heal that and bring them back together and i don't think anyone's really thinking about what would be best yeah and that's that's fine that's fine with me. It's all in the moment, uh, sort of emotions, just like how they just get up and leave. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anyone watching the movie would think it's a good idea for him to just take the kid and go on this road trip. I mean, yeah, they all sort of act on impulse. Well, yeah. the movie I believe was, I, I, I don't know how, this movie was exactly made but if you read the the little booklet that comes with the criterion disc there was a lot of um shooting as they went along and and feeling it out mm-hmm. as they went along and i again i don't i mean it's it's an original screenplay by sham sam shepherd but it's also loosely based on one of his other plays so i i there is that sort of sense of in the moment both in the within the story, but within the filmmaking, like there's no way to predict the end of shots and things in this. It's it's a very sort of well. On one hand, it's a totally play it by ear. On the other hand, it is meticulously crafted. Like the actual photography of this movie is 
stunningly detailed. It, it, it is, I think, it plays as much as you said you wanted to mount every picture on your wall. I think this thing plays as much as a photographic essay of different parts of America, like the the L.A. cityscape, the mm-hmm. openness of the, the the Texas desert, and then finally the sort of glass and and bricks of of Houston. Um, I, I think that is kind of playing on that as well. Uh, I but. When it's all said and done, it certainly doesn't feel like a movie they just, you know, fired out. It it does feel incredibly controlled. Uh, I don't know whether how much of it was serendipity and and how much of it was storyboarding. I I don't know. I like the fact that his character just essentially to us starts out as a blank slate and all these different characters and different, you know, uh, past transgressions that he's, you know, committed. You sort of learn that as time goes on. And I really appreciate that, um, you know, style of filmmaking where, you know, you, you get you get a sense of mystery from the character. But I think that the fact that he, you know, is almost searching for himself, you know, finding a sense of identity of some kind, and I think that's ultimately he tries to find that through some act of redemption. And for him, maybe it's not the right choice, but I think for him, in his mind, the act of redemption is at least reuniting you know mother and son for the moment whether they're i don't i don't know if they're meant to be you know together for long term or not but i don't know i i think that i think from the monologue to the very end i'm kind of a mess <laughs> i really like respond more and more to the story uh just on a pure emotional level um and i like i just really i re- i think the ending is beautiful i just i mean it's it's almost like he gets a fresh beginning, and I love that he's like bathed in this green light. Um, not exactly sure what that represents, but other than it just looking beautiful, I don't know. And also made me think of uh, you know the ending of Drive a little bit. Yeah, I, I never really got from it that um, even if they did continue to you know have this mother son relationship, I never really got that she would stick with her profession. Well, one would like hope to, not. <laughs> I mean, it, to me, it felt like she was just doing that um, not because she was a, 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 a bad person, not that I even think she, you know, that not that I think that makes her a bad person to be working that, but um, it seemed to me that it was just a way to, to send her son money. Right. Well, again, it comes back to this hiding behind screens thing. She's just doing nothing um, to bide her time and and just sort of play behind the screen. I mean, in, in, I mean, she I, says it at one point to Harry Dean Stanton that like every voice coming across the screen was his voice, as if she's sort of still in this sort of dialogue with herself. Why? Hey, why did I light my husband on fire while he was trying to sleep? And, and that's a recurring motif throughout the movie, um, whether it's, you know, the Harry Dean Stanton getting in the backseat of uh, Dean Stockwell's car or, you know, when he walks his kid home, he's walking. They're on opposite sides of the street. Like that was one of the sort of my favorite motifs of the movie is, um, you know, even as he's sort of rounding about and getting closer and like making connections and sort of discovering himself through these connections. There's always that distance there. Um, of course that, 
you know, the, the glass uh, divider is the most powerful where eventually I have to turn off the lights and he has to put the lamp. But like, that's, you know, the, that's probably the best image in the, well, the last even one. Even yeah, better totally. when he does the lamp, they're actually perfectly overlapped in one scene. That is flat out yeah. fucking haunting when he, when they actually merge together in the, like, there's a lot of reflections in the movie too, but that, that one there is like that. It blew my mind when they mm-hmm. overlapped them in exactly that fashion. Yeah, um, I think the I think one of the most amazing things about Harry Dean Stanton's performance is, I believe Kurt, Kurt you said that you know you uh, you've you know you've seen him in a lot of movies and he has a lot of range, um, but you've never seen him do anything like this. But like, there really aren't many movies where you, an actor gets to show so much range in a single character. Um, and he has this, and somehow he's able to be all different kinds of. Um, as he's sort of exploring and finding himself, he's able to be all different kinds of people. And whether he's sort of the blank slate at the beginning, as Jim said, or um, when he's that, you know, one delightful little scene where he's sort of dressing up, wanting to be a rich dad, <laughs> not a poor dad, a rich dad. And, uh, um, and uh, you know, of course, that final scene with uh, him and his uh, wife, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Nat- Natasha Kinski. Yeah. Um, like there's so much uh different elements of that person that we get to see in the single movie and they're uh and they all feel like part of the same person which is i think um Dean's, you know one of harry dean stanton's best uh choices is like like at the beginning you don't know if you know, like I said, like if if he is mentally disabled, or if he's just quiet, or if he has post traumatic stress from something that we haven't seen yet, um, there's always a bit of a mystery about where he's coming from. But at the same time, um, he's able to play all those sorts of vague positions without it ever seeming like he's like, oh, he's just acting like different out of nowhere. Like he, it's not, it never comes across as like schizophrenic, right? Um, and I think that's sort of the real marvel. You know, not of of the performance in the movie. It's not any one scene, though. Of course, again, the final scene is incredible. But just the way that he's able to play all different kinds of scenes in all different kinds of ways. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing that I like about the movie is it brings a lot. Like you guys, you guys were saying that you were having a hard time sort of narrowing down what type of film this is, and I think that's why I I love it so much. It it has like the um, sort of road movie element it has Mm -hmm. the fish out of water element the you know uh i need to rediscover who i am uh and then this whole last act which is almost a completely different experience altogether this just more deep um emotional experience I, i think it just manages to hit so many different tones um that it, it it's kind of a like I can see maybe people having a problem with the pacing, right. but to me it it feels like a a crowd pleaser. Like it just the opening has a lot of comedic beats and it's very light and um you know it feels like you're you're going on a little bit of an adventure with these two guys and it feels like Midnight Run, even though Midnight Run came after like the sequence with the plane and everything. Or uh, Jonathan yeah. Jonathan Demi's Melvin and Howard, where there's just two guys pretty much. You don't know anything about them in in a, in a car riding for twenty minutes. 
That's really good I, movie. I, I, I agree with Jay. It definitely, the other thing that surprised me is, I didn't know anything about, the, like I said, I didn't know anything about the details in the movie, but I did know, I like in sort of when it was, the way it was described in one line and, you know, online or wherever I would read about it, it would always be like one of the strangest, one of the most idiosyncratic, one of the most unusual movies. So I was expecting something sort of um, very difficult and more artsy and, um, and no, it's, it really is, you know, because again, it's about these characters and has such a deep root in those characters that um, it did feel like a crowd pleaser to me too. And that was one of the other things that most surprised me about it. The scene in the film when they're wait when they when they've staked out the um, bank machine, yeah. which oddly enough, great American thing. It's a drive-through, <laughs> like series of bank machine lanes, which is just alien to me <laughs> to look at. But anyway, um, and the way they stake it out with the walkie-talkies, and that scene plays like. It, it like you say that all, all this thing is broken up into different movies. That scene plays like this wonderful little quirky comedy, like a Sundance kind of <laughs> scene, and and yet it never cheapens the characters ever. Like it's amazing how many different tones there are, and there's so many points where it could go to the point where it they're just doing this and at the expense of the character, and somehow he pulls it off and the, and that the character is never, you may not like the guy. I, I don't think Harry Dean Stanton plays a particularly likable guy for the most part, but I think you're kind of with him. I, 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 sure. I can't say there's any point in this movie where I'm saying, let's go to the next scene. I, I'm completely enmeshed with whatever is happening right then and now. Although I do have some regrets that Dean Stockwell leaves the movie never to return because I, that is the most warm performance I have ever seen him give. He's he's just an aw shucks kind of guy, uh, and I don't. Yeah, you, I, Jay mentioned it earlier uh, when we started. I I can't think of any other movie I've seen him do like heavy duty theater, like um, the Eugene O'Neill's uh, Long, Long Day's Day, Journey yeah. Tonight, which he's awesome, and he's like, yeah, I don't know, eighteen or something. Well, in who that. can forget and him then, from Blue Velvet? You know, Blue Velvet, yes, and and Dune, and all the. The, the stuff that he's done. Actually, Harry Dean Stanton's done a shit ton of True. David Lynch movies as yeah. well. But um, yeah, this was this was really special. I actually wanted to to see uh, more in his of him and his weird European wife, um, who I could not put a finger on. I love the way I, I mean, she said. I love the way she says Hunter. <laughs> Hunter. I just like that. I like. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it does strike me as odd that they gave this guy. I mean, uh, I mean, he's a rich Californian businessman, but it's funny that they gave him a very European wife. It, it's a very unusual choice. <laughs> yeah. Isn't the production? Didn't the production come from though, like Europe? Well, it was yeah, an American-produced film. Vendors is German. German, and 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 even though he, for some reason, um, Germans seem to have an obsession with the American West and particularly like the Indians. Um, like if you go to like these sorts, if you go to like um, Anne of Green Gables in Canada or the, the Prince Edward Island, you'll get all Japanese. And if you go like way up North into the wilderness where the, you know, where the Indian reserves are, you'll find tons of Germans like operating little tour things and whatnot. I don't know why that is. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's, that seems to be a flavor of, um, 
when he makes these American movies. He seems to have that that vibe. Although this is one of his earlier. I mean, did has he he made a, not quite a few American movies, and and Wings of Desire came three years after this. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't really know the order off off the top of my head. But know, it's funny that Ry I know he Cooter, did a couple of movies with uh, Dennis Hopper. I think um, I can't remember what the American Friend. I don't know. Maybe that was something that he did. That was also a road movie that had a lot of the um, sort of late night cinematography. That's that's something I I really love with this the the photography cinematography just like the sun blasted landscapes or even just the way you know the, the camera you know films in these I, I'm pretty sure they're most of these are found locations like you know the, the the hotel rooms they stay in or whatever those were kind of just found you know as they went along too and I I like that element of the of the movie the and the more I learned about it the more I appreciated it just one of their, my, one of, their approach to making the movie one of my favorite um i'm not sure if it's a, a joke or if it's just like an interesting little thing but um like the, the credits start on the, what you what you eventually learn is an eagle eye shot of a mountain you know and you see harry dean stanton wandering through the desert and then as the eagle sort of lands and harry dean stanton looks at him and you know and then harry dean stanton looks at the landscape and it's all just amazing and beautiful all the credits stop and then he goes on again, and then it introduces the cinematographer's credit, as if, <laughs> as if like like when a when like a band when the leader of a band introduces all of its members, and then it's like and on drums, and then like the drums are like doo, 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 like that. <laughs> well, it um, is a it is a slam dunk in that department. I, yeah. I I and there's just little scenes like the scene when Harry D. Stanton steps right into the frame. And he's got that huge, like, four-liter plastic jug, and he just – and there's almost nothing left in it. That shot, after the super long, <laughs> wide-open shot, to have it right, right up in your face, um, it is kind of showy in that way, I guess. In a good way. Uh, Kurt, you had mentioned the bank scene. I think there, that's the only moment in the film that um, – I felt was a little strange was when the, the kid, like it, it fades to black uh, and it fades back up and the kid has, he falls asleep on that little um, lift there, the ledge (laughs) and Harry Dean Stanton is sleeping in the truck. It just seems weird to me. Like it seems like a very kind of uh, go around device to, past the time or something like i don't know who would fall asleep in a situation like that like they would have to be sitting there for either someone slipped them something or they've been sitting there for like six six hours straight or something it's houston texas it's probably 42 degrees celsius so every everyone in houston just siestas falls asleep everywhere everyone has narcolepsy (laughs) well i i just think only in the 1980s like the society is so much moved on that there'd just be this random kid sleeping on the side of the road and no (laughs) one would say anything um but i i totally um totally believe that um i like the way they gave the kid this sort of space um obsession which i think is really uh, my son's the same age as this kid and that i think at least in my experience is incredibly accurate with the uh 
the, like the Star Wars blankets, and he's got like a yeah. like I think a Star Trek T-shirt on, and he's constantly talking about space facts and whatever. I really like the uh, the kid actor, and I really like the kid character. Yeah, I was, can't uh, imagine that's an easy role to pull off. He's also he's the uh, he's the son of Karen Black, and they were uh, in Invaders from Mars together, 1986. Toby Hooper remake. Wait a minute. He's the main kid from the Toby Hooper remake? Yeah. Of? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. I, I had no idea. Yeah, he, that's a great little movie. His real name is Hunter. Hunter yes. Carson. Yeah. Oh, you might as well. If you're going to... If you're going to hire kid actors. Although Hunter seems like the right name to fit into this uh, movie. I I read somewhere someone was trying to make the comparison of Harry Dean Stanton's character, uh, Travis, to Taxi Driver's Travis Bickle. But I think that's a total stretch. I think that's just critical wankery myself. But, um, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. And I guess, yeah, I mean, Natasha Kinski is Claude Kinski's... uh, daughter and you can see it when mm-hmm. in, in those scenes when she's just staring at the camera from from lengthy time it's like a a john voight to angelina jolie or a steven to live tyler like wow uh, i see the resemblance but i'm can't believe that <laughs> a woman this beautiful came from a man that ugly <laughs> i thought her uh, accent was a little uh off at times too it, you can almost hear uh, a German accent coming through every once in a while until she says something that requires a Southern drawl that kind of pops up out of nowhere. But it, I mean, it's not a big deal. She's not really talking very much. And the beauty of it is I got that. I I saw that, but I was under the impression that because she's in these little different like dioramas inside the peep show that she was kind of in the character of, like the woman in the hotel or the woman in the coffee shop or or I, I had originally thought that too but she continues it once they lapse into serious like mm-hmm. connection right. but i mean overall i that's that and the the sleeping on the bank ledge are basically the only two tiny nitpicks i could think of in this film i i think it's a perfect film what did you guys think of the color coding of the movie i think that is incredibly conscious like jim you mentioned earlier there's a few scenes of this really sickly green light it's really like again very showy cinematography but that stuff didn't strike me nearly as much as when this movie goes crazy red like for for the most part the two characters uh harry dean stanton and hunter are both wearing these incredibly bright red t-shirts and when <laughs> harry dean stanton goes into the brothel it's it, like the whole film yeah. just goes red for about like while he's going through the corridors and then the, the movie again ends on this incredibly um like red like in, intentionally tinted um red scene and i, I i'm sure like I, again i know you guys said it earlier on that you don't want to the joy of this movie is not talking it to death and just letting it wash over you. But um, it, I, I have no doubts that um, someone sort of thought about this movie in terms of color, and uh, it it does use it very, very effectively. Uh, and it's showy about it, but I, th- I still think it totally works. Well, I mean, I, like you said, I think it's very deliberately shot, but it's never 
but it's never showy to the point of distraction um, in any way. It's not a, it's not something like of all the adjectives I would use to describe this movie. You know, stylish probably wouldn't be near the top, despite the fact that it's beautiful. Um, I mean, the and again, I think you know, just the the costume of Harry Dean Stanton. The first thing you see, your eyes immediately drawn to that red baseball cap, which is Correct. you know, it's not it's not only just like the only color in his clothes, but it's also just so out of place and strange. I mean, I never, I mean, I definitely noticed the color was deliberate, but I never made definite connections or theories on any, what any of it meant. Well, you Um, do get caught up and I agree. And I think it's the right way. You get caught up in the movie emotionally. Like that's a, the sign of a good movie is when you kind of (laughs) stop like looking at it analytically and you're just swept away with it. Right. Uh, And I think that happens, but I will say this. And I, I think I think the hunter's obsession with space is another thing where you can, you know, you make connections between the vastness of space and the distances. I know. And, oh, I never thought and, about that. You're right. You know, I mean, it's it's another one of those things that's never overwhelming or distracting, but is it does add texture and flavor to the the movie. Well, and, yeah, and again, I mean, um, Dean Stockwell's company is putting up billboard signs, and, the, and uh, there's something about. Um, when you drive on the American interstates, which they end up doing in order to get from where he picks them up back home, <laughs> there's something about America on those interstates that causes restaurants and things to build those signs like into the stratosphere. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It's like a competition of how high they can get the, 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 the signs. And then, of course, the... Uh, um, you know, the imagery on that. and the it's It's almost like another screen, which is a... Another distancing effect, which you which you kind of get. It is it is a pretty freaking smart movie if you think about it that way. Yeah, uh, the last thing I'll say, the last thing I have to say is, um, there's no actor on this planet that can rock a trucker hat quite like Harry Dean Stanton. Um, is there agree. any any final thoughts or anything else that anyone wants to say about Paris, Texas? I just wanted to point out the scene where he's walking with Hunter um, and they're on either side of the street and he's uh, Hunter is mimicking his actions on the opposite side of the street as a a really fun scene. And I, I'm not sure if it's something that has been done elsewhere. I'm, I'm sure maybe it has, but there's a, uh, Spike Jones short film that I would imagine is playing off of that scene in Paris, Texas. Um, I think it's called How They Get There or something where a guy and a girl are mimicking each other on either side of the street and the guy eventually walks into traffic and a car flies 50 feet into the air. And um, I just thought that's another example of like a in the middle of what you would expect to be a, a sort of um, deep and dense and maybe uh, sort of depressing film, there's a lot of playfulness in it. And yeah. I think it's because Harry Dean Stanton's character is just a, a seemingly another big kid. Like they're, they're constantly him and Hunter are, are basically on the same uh, wavelength. Like when, when Hunter wants to go find his mom with him and he asks when they're going to leave and Harry Dean Stanton says now, which is a very irresponsible kid-like response. And they're eating McDonald's when they 
when he says it, and then they yeah. immediately go buy walkie-talkies. And I think that's what I liked is it's just his relationship with the kid and and how well they get along and how he kind of comes down to that kid's level. Yeah. Well, I think that's a major step on Harry Dean Stanton's climb back up to some level of adulthood. I'm not saying that he ever sort of achieves the fully responsible adult, but what you get from the narrative that um, like he was infatuated with her and then he was super pissed off at her. And it, yeah, you, you get the sense that this is some interesting way of trying to relate to you know, late 20th century maleness in the United States. And I, I don't know if uh, you could ever call Harry Dean Stanton an everyman, but they, they kind of try to go there with that, at least maybe a, a southwestern everyman, like a country song kind of everyman. I mean, the movie, yeah. the movie does play like a, like a country song writ large. Yeah, with Ry Cooter's score. You know, it's, it's, I, I guess it's more of like a blues Americana roots feel to it with the very sparse sly guitar kind of stuff. I think he's got a rendition of uh, Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. <laughs> and I think that, I don't know. The, Warm was the bed that was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. This this movie has grown over time with me as, like Jay said, it's it's damn near perfect. Um, yeah, I was I was thinking more about the colors too. I just you know on the, off the top of my head, if there, I don't know if red is supposed to signify you know passion and fury or and love that he's you know desperately trying to hold on to, and then like the greens might be sort of like his feeling of you know being cold and alienated in some way. Um, that I kind of like I like it you know especially when you watch something like Punch Drunk Love. I kind of like having that hyper awareness of. You know, when characters decide to, you know, possess a symbolism in the form of color, I kind of uh, enjoy trying to pick that stuff out sometimes. Sometimes I read too much into it, like purple with Breaking Bad. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I just, there is something incredibly um, encapsulating about Americana and, and the search for identity within this movie and I, I I think Harry Dean Stanton's performance is one for the ages. I really can't say enough good things about um, everything, include especially his performance. It's 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 one of those if people were to tell me what, you know, movies like if people want you know, sort of the American experience but also want uh, something a little bit challenging but also, you know, audience pleasing, I would point them to this movie. I really would and um, you know, someone like my mother, she responds to this movie and she's not, that was my, you know, that was my first thought is, you know what? I bet you my mother would really like this. Yeah, movie. for sure. <laughs> oh man. Let's, let's all just have a little moment of silence for the, in, the intense agony that is trying to pick out movies that you think your mother would like. <laughs> hey, my mom Mom's... likes boogie nights. Oh ne- yeah. You just never know. Yeah. My mom went through a period where she watched Zodiac about, it had to be about 15 times within like half a year. So wow. that's, that's basically doing that. That movie's not short. That's doing that back to back to back, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 
Last, I sat last... down and watched uh, Bad Taste with my mother. <laughs> Peter Jackson's Bad Taste. So, wow. you know, teach their own. <laughs> <laughs> last movie I, I showed my mom was uh, Fish Called Wanda. She was oh, not having it. That's fucking classic, oh, though. I know. Something's she... seriously wrong with your mother, sir. <laughs> with her taste in movies, at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Okay, any All final right. thoughts on Paris, Texas? Or shall we move along to the other half of the show? I give it a Let's five out of five. I, I'll, I'll give it a five <laughs> out of five as well. Are we rating it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we did well, last. I, we did last show, so I don't know. Um, but I think yeah, it was. I, I don't know what our rating system was for the last show. I think it was out of five. I I, I give this. I, I agree as well. I give this movie a perfect score. I, I can't see how you could hate this movie. It's just too damn good. Yeah, uh, I'll probably give it a five out of five, or maybe a four point five out of five. In between those, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Um, I, so, I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we can do it. So we're at the intermission uh, portion of the show, and we're going to try this meet and greet thing uh, i'm going to start with you jim because you're welcome back by the Yay, way thanks um, happy to be back glad of glad for you to return um and uh i mean you're coming from the director's club and both jay and i have done episodes on there so we've all the little podcasting community of all cross crisscrossed back and forth what was the re- most recent episode of the director's club <laughs> one of the more painful ones for me tyler perry Oh, it's so good. It is. It's a great, li- great to listen to. Absolutely. Our guest brought up some <laughs> preparing, fan- preparing for it was yeah. was painful. Uh, well, that, yeah. that, that's that's a perfect segue over to Patrick because this. Uh, I mean, I've been on on the directors' club. We've not brought you into the cine class. But we certainly will at some point. Yeah. Um, but I always interact with Patrick's like. Fist shaking to the heavens on Facebook (laughs) with some of the movies. I'm like, oh, they're at the Tyler Perry episode because he's just talking about one after the other. And there is a certain art to angry ranting on Facebook and engaging other people. You have a whole – like you have like a little fan club because every time you drop a bomb, there's like – 50 comments and everyone is everyone is coming in that's uh yeah you don't see that too often and the facebook people tend to you know kind of do it half-ass whereas you've you've almost got this little that would be me gather around <laughs> the campfire uh kind of thing going well i it's uh, i most of the people i know who end up commenting i know from the message boards on chud and uh the message boards got redesigned and then the whole thing happened where they're basically really hard to navigate and really hard to be on and all that. Isn't that the entire Chud website from no, not, yeah, not, one? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. But uh, so, but we we're already friends on Facebook and we sort of realized that, that these are better than message boards uh, because we're already on them. So it's, it was sort of a pre, pre-built community that just got shifted to uh, the Facebook. Um, also – I have to say, it will, I'll get, yeah, 50 comments, but usually what will happen is I'll say, hey, guys, remember that Fifth Element is really crazy? And then it's 49 comments of people quoting the Fifth Element. So <laughs> I don't want to say like the new – I don't want to say like the new Cinema de Cahiers is on, is on my Facebook. <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> 
There is a weird cult following around that movie, which I've, I on one one part of my brain understands that, but another part of my brain completely does not get why people are so passionate. I am completely with you on that one, Kurt. I understand both sides. (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 the best heavy metal movie that that ever got made. Is uh, how I, I, feel. Sub, I the the live action one for sure. Yeah. Um, no, actually, uh, the guest we had on for Tyler Perry, Evan. Say, do you remember how to pronounce his last name? Seth. Was it just Sethoff? Sethoff, probably. Yeah. Um, he does a he does a series of articles on Badass Digest as Sam Strange, and uh, his his uh, where it's. It's this character he does where he's a director who who directed every movie in Hollywood, and it's him sort of remembering how the movies went, and they're always remembered wrong. It's always it's very very funny. But anyway, his his article for Fifth Element kind of sums up what makes that movie so amazing. Uh, so if you want to check that out, that'll probably clear up some things or not. Probably not actually. But and uh, Jay, how are you doing back there? Just in general. <laughs> <laughs> In general, I'm, I'm doing uh, pretty good. In general, just uh, got the cat on my lap Aww. and uh, enjoying a nice evening. What'd you have? What'd you have for dinner? Grilled cheese. Mm, good. Which was good. Great. With or without ketchup? With ketchup. Okay. Actually, mm. I was watching uh, Chopped, and it was the episode where it's all cafeteria lunch ladies. <laughs> And the one woman made the most ingenious dessert. It was a, a dessert grilled cheese with uh, sweetened cream cheese instead of Whoa. cheddar. That's which amazing. Which I, I thought sounded quite good. Yeah. But, and still but, fried. Yes, of <laughs> course. Um, other than that, just, uh, yeah, working. How's the trailer editing going? It's uh, almost done. It's about 98% done. I have to, after this, I have to go back into it and rejig some of the audio and and uh, it'll be all good. And when are you going to, when is that going to go public? That's going to go public on Monday. Woo-hoo. And it's not, it's not really like a, an official trailer. I, I don't know when this will be up, so I don't know if I can say what it's for, but you'll find out Monday what it's for. It's, it's kind of a, just an early look at, at the next documentary, which is about time travel. It's called how to build a time machine. And, um, we've shot some stuff so far and it's been coming along really well. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted to give a teaser for the trailer, uh, Ridley Scott Prometheus style. Yeah. Uh, Right in the middle of, uh, you're going to have to find the Easter egg in Film Junk to get to the Movie Club podcast and find the middle section (laughs) and find that. And that will point you to the link on the particular website where this trailer will be. Is there anything sadder than than an ignored alternate reality game? (laughs) Like... Like, like what? It like they set up the marketing for for the Dark Knight and all that, but no one did it. <laughs> yeah, like if they went and did all that for that, what was that? Uh, Darkness Falls or whatever that 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 one that sort of completely failed right around Christmas time. Yeah, no one was going and dragging down websites for that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, let's tackle this uh, son of a bitch. Um, Southland Tales. 
not exactly the best reception uh, when it first debuted at no. Cannes. Uh, booed. Um, but that's not – actually, I usually find movies that are booed at Cannes I like. But this movie was uh, unfinished. It was really booed. It, it was actually picked up by Sony and then it took another year or more to re-edit the living crap out of it and add in a lot of new voiceover, special effects – Everything that can go wrong with a huge epic science fiction film, like Blade Runner style or whatever, went wrong with Southland Tales, except this movie never played in Canada theatrically. Um, I don't know if anyone here is, when we go around the table, we'll ask if anyone's seen it in the cinema, but no one saw this movie, and it just kind of disappeared. And those that did kind of come around on it generally hated it. Um, and it just seems to be after all the sort of Cinderella story aspect with Richard Kelly's first movie, Donnie Darko, uh, it just was kind of sad and whatever that this one just completely died. Uh, when I saw it the first time, I, I certainly didn't love it, but I liked it. Um, I liked it quite a bit, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me set the movie up. Uh, it's this movie's impossible to give a synopsis yeah, for. Yeah. Um, like it, it, did, could, I, it could take like twenty minutes and give a synopsis. I, but I did not envy uh, Jim's job of having to sum up the sort of wandering story of Paris, Texas. But I definitely I envy you even less. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Southland Tales. To me, the best way to describe Southland Tales is if someone uh, merged Fox News. The Big Lebowski and Mulholland Drive into one movie and cast it entirely with Saturday Night Live and cult actors. And basically, the movie is set in a Los Angeles beach community in the middle of the 2008 presidential elections. Uh, The movie was made in 2005, so it was uh, a near future. But in this near future... The Middle East has nuclear bombed Texas, and that has driven the Americans to be at war with about five or six countries in the Middle East. Um, And that has caused all of the oil to stop flowing into the United States. So a German inventor is working for the U.S. to make a new like Nikola Tesla form of ethereal energy that they call liquid karma and somehow in the middle of all of this um the rock playing essentially a fictionalized version of arnold schwarzenegger um lands with amnesia and ends up in the middle of his amnesia bout researching a role for a film written by a porn star um and in connection with the Republican Party and a Marxist terrorist group that has a number of schemes in play to destroy the Republican Party and break down the Super Patriot Act that they have set up. It all culminates on this massive green energy-powered mega zeppelin um, and uh, some possibly uh, rift in the universe that has something to do with Sean William Scott. Um, And despite The Rock and Son William Scott being the main characters, this is not a sequel to The Rundown. That's the best I can do with this movie. (laughs) Great job. (laughs) What did – I'll start with uh, Jay. Was this your first time watching it or had you seen it before? Uh, I had seen it before. And uh, my my experience this time around 
went like this. Like, I, I don't absolutely hate this movie, but I put it on first 10 minutes. I'm thinking, you know, maybe this, this little bit of time I've given it has really uh, been worthwhile because it seems like this, this could be a lot of fun. Then about an hour into it, my mind starts to uh, drift, at, at least throughout the first hour. At, at the hour mark, I'm like ready to just start, you know, dusting while the movie's on or something <laughs> or do something while it's on. And then at the two-hour mark, uh, I'm, you know, finishing up some work while it's on the TV in the background. And at the two-and-a-half-hour mark, I am completely detached from it and happy that it's over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm next, That's it. correct? Yeah, go for it, Jim. Okay, well, I'm kind of a... I don't know. I'm. It's so weird. My 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 first experience what was after I heard all the reviews. I didn't see it in the theater. I pretty much just rented it. Having been kind of a fan of Donnie Darko, it's one of those movies that the more I watch it, the less I like it. Uh, but at the same time, I think I'm a fan of this guy because he's he's kind of nuts and i i kind of admire his audacity in tackling a lot of weird crazy ideas and not, not I, i'm not saying he's a great filmmaker i just think he's uh an interesting uh filmmaker with really good ideas but not not quite there yet with the storytelling process he's a filmmaker that kind of goes up his own ass and that's sometimes okay with me if I'm enjoying, you know, everything else going on. Uh, with that said, this movie is a complete mess, but I find it entertaining and, and not in an ironic way, not like something with the room or whatever. I just, I get um, a thrill out of seeing even just some of these character actors who don't normally have, you know, these kinds of crazy showy roles. They're, you know they're they're there in the forefront. I thought the casting was kind of weird and ingenious. Not to say that the acting is particularly good. Um, I I don't think Justin Timberlake is at is he's kind of terrible in this movie to be honest. And I'm not a fan of the voiceover. The Book of Revelation stuff is really um, annoying to me. I know that he's trying to do like a Cliff's Notes version of his prequel graphic novel. Uh, trilogy that's supposed to accompany this movie with uh, like the beginning and most of the uh, voiceover narration throughout the movie. I don't think any of that stuff works, but um, as sort of like this crazy mashup puzzle mo of a movie that I don't know what I don't know what his deal is because even as as I was watching the box, um, that is a very simple premise, which was told you know as a Twilight Zone episode at one point, uh, it's based on a story by Richard Matheson that is nothing like uh, Richard Kelly's adaptation of it. I think he just tends to, like, you know, go for broke. And whether it completely works or not, um, that's definitely not the case with his work, with all of his movies. I don't think... I think his ideas are there, but he hasn't really, 
you know, fit them into a cohesive narrative that, you know, works in terms of a story that congeals in any way. But I don't know. I do kind of see the, the Mulholland Drive connection. I, I, I am a fan of, of David Lynch, and I see that his influence is kind of here. I even thought of Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Um, but I don't know. I just... I. I kind of enjoy this movie as a train wreck, but I also don't, you know, consider it to be terrible in in just at least the ideas that I like. And maybe it's because he's kind of coming at coming at it at a you know as a fan of like Philip K. Dick or whatever. And you know, I, I just see it as a as, as a romp in some ways. I mean, it definitely goes from like you know um, that that uh, the I mean he's it, the 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 music video moment with Justin Timberlake in an arcade that's called Fire. Is that an arcade fire? Is that... (laughs) Yeah, but like, and towards the end it becomes all melancholy as he's like, you know, I mean, that's the thing about about Kelly. His tone is just completely inconsistent. Um, And normally that kind of stuff bugs me, but I don't know. I just, maybe I'm an apologist for this guy, but um, I kind of I kind of love this movie in some strange way that, you know, it's maybe it's just an exercise in excess that, you know, borders on pretentious. I, you know, I will admit that, but borders. (laughs) (laughs) So Patrick, yes, please continue, Patrick. Okay. Well, of the uh, box office mojo reported $275,000, this uh, estimated about $20 million movie made in the theater. I was one of those. I was uh, one of those tickets, um, and I, I dragged my friend along because I heard about its sort of disastrous can screening, and I kept just hearing about how crazy it was, and it just seemed like the kind of thing that you want to catch in a theater. And you know, I, of course, I had no idea what hit me after I saw it, and not necessarily in that good way where I'm thinking, uh, where it's just like, wow, I can't even process how great that movie was. It's more in that way, like, I can't even process how you thought, like, to make this, like, yeah. to, to take, but, okay, but I, I you know, uh, subsequent viewings, I've really warmed up to this, and I really have, I guess, I just, because it's, it kind of, is, as silly as, as we, or weird as it may sound, it's kind of a personal movie for me, because um, I think this is sort of the ultimate college stoner movie, um, more so than a lot of typical stoner movies, because like to me, uh, you know, being a film student who smoked pot with a lot of other film students like this is like every stupid half baked conversation uh, <laughs> that, was, that was had, um, especially, you know, I went to school in 2007, so I was. I was right, you know, in all the oh terror, you know, when George W. Bush is still in office, and and yeah, the war on terror is bullshit. Like when, like all of the sort of the ideas that this movie's preoccupied with um, were still very big, and you know, right there in the culture. And uh, it is, and it's, and like even its touchstones, you know, it, it quotes the most of it quotes the most famous line from the most famous T. S. Eliot poem, and it quote, and it's, and it's like like really surface level uh, references to Karl Marx and, uh, and um, they're, you know, uh, the sort of thing where, you know, revelation where people get obsessed with sort of the symbol, the symbolism inside of revelation without ever considering what it actually means, you know, and like all of its touchstones are very much like freshman to junior 
in college who smokes a lot of weed. <laughs> and I mean, the fact that takes that a large part of it takes place in Venice Beach, which is sort of where all of those, uh, you know, burnouts who, you know, that's sort of that's sort of where they all flock, uh, I think, is telling. And I think sort of the way he casts it by the 90s, like pretty much everyone, anyone who's in the SNL in the 90s, I think that's telling. And <laughs> like, I, I think he has having fun time with it. And it's it's sort of like the closest a film has ever gotten to a uh, to a, like a Thomas Pynchon novel. Like I actually just read uh, The Crying of Lot 49, which is a very similar movie that's ostensibly like a conspiracy thriller but it's actually super postmodern and meta and referencing itself and goes on weird digressions where it'll have like pop songs like the complete lyrics of of fictional pop songs playing you know and and you'll be reading scenes from plays that characters have written and um and in that way it's just it's it's something that's very familiar to me in in tone and style and something that I'm you know, very fond of, despite the fact that, you know, it could have done all those things and, you know, have made sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, every time I watch this, including the most recent time, uh, every time I watch it, I go, all right, I've seen this enough now. I've, you know, I've probably seen it four or five times by now. I go, I've seen it enough now. I know the basic sort of events have no, having foreknowledge of all of these things, I'll be able to get it this time. Never do. Never once have I ever been able to follow it all the way through and even um there was a salon article that you uh sent me kurt where it not only does it in great detail describe every event in the movie it uh it and it sort of answers a lot of questions about references and and why things happen and stuff even like reading that i was still like getting lost (laughs) and i mean and to and i don't think that uh I don't think Richard Kelly um, is taking it so seriously as he maybe if t- he took uh, Donnie, Donnie Darko. Darko. Yeah. Like I, I really don't think we're meant to. I think that part of the fun of it is just how it's just a so fragmented and sort of bludgeoning you with these kinds of references. And obviously, that's you know not going to be for everybody. But um, I think it's an extremely enjoyable experience with with a lot of legitimately funny moments a lot of unintentionally funny moments and um just it is one of those movies like sort of the fifth element (laughs) where you can just keep mentioning every tiny weird thing and eventually you realize that the entire movie is made of things that make no sense um and i enjoy that a lot so i really do like this movie but i will never you know defend it as satire i won't ever defend it as uh you know as well constructed or as or I didn't ever defend it as having well-rounded or interesting characters that you care about, but as sort of the film personification of, um, you know, smoking pot in dorm rooms, I think it's pretty great. <laughs> well, this is sadly or awesomely my sixth time uh, watching this movie. <laughs> I never got a chance to see it theatrically. I actually tried to have... Uh, the Toronto Underground Cinema in Toronto bring up a theatrical print just so I could defend that movie on stage <laughs> to an audience um, because while I didn't quote very much I liked it a lot the first time I watched it of course I didn't understand the plot the first time I watched it um, but with each subsequent viewing it has massively 
uh, grown on me. And and while I don't completely disagree uh, with Jay's criticism that it makes you want to do chores around your house <laughs> um, and just get little errands done because the movie is distancing and cold and, and, and needlessly overly complex, but I happen to like these sorts of crazy Vonnegut-esque satires of America mm-hmm. and... I think that Southland Tales is a great satire of America at that exact moment. Um, uh, I mean, he does predict that Clinton would be on the Hillary Clinton would be on the Democratic card. He doesn't really even go there. He just mentions it in passing. But other than that, I love the idea that this movie is constructed as a channel hopping experience. It does have a cohesive plot. You will see that the, um, you know, all the characters and the double crosses, they all kind of do make sense. Uh, but it's told in such a way that you get the sense that someone is channel hopping. And I mean, way more on steroids than RoboCop or Starship Troopers, which also goes for that kind of feel where they like will insert commercials and music videos and, and everything into the mix um, to give you the flavor of that world. But as an act of world building, I really think that Southland Tales gets this strange America where a war would be sponsored by Budweiser and Hustler magazine. <laughs> um, or that, and I love the idea um, that the green energy source that um, America is finally forced to adopt after it's cut off the teat of foreign oil ends up bringing about the end of the world. I think that's wacky and, and, and delightfully satirical. I, 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 do, I will defend this movie uh, as satire. I'm a big fan of um, Domino, which is uh, also written by Richard Kelly, and it does this even more. I mean, hmm. Tony Scott, who directed Domino, is obviously much more of a visual stylist. I mean, Kelly knows a w- his way around a long tracking shot, uh, which he has a big one in, in Southland Tales, which we can talk about later. But Tony Scott knows spastic over-editing, and that is what Southland Tales and Domino, for that matter, feel like they're written. Like, you're just jumping around like crazy. It feels like maybe the proper home for this would be a, you know, HBO miniseries, but I, I think that if you tried to stretch it out into a long, character-developing thing, it would wreck it. I think the the fact that all of the characters are broad TV talking head types is what makes the film. I, 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 that's what makes it for me. I would, I would, no, I would, I would definitely agree with that. But at the same time, I would say the fact that everything is so broad and you don't have time to develop depth anything is the reason I wouldn't defend it as satire. Like all of it, I'm not. I'm, there's not necessarily things I quote unquote disagree with. It's just it feels very broad and it never feels as biting as say idiocracy or, you know, it's, um, which is as, it's just as satire. I just feel it's not as strong as it is just a sort of cultural throw everything in a blender kind of a thing. It's funny. If you go back to Donnie Darko, the, the satire in Donnie Darko, like the Patrick Swayze character, the Smurf stuff, the married with children stuff. Um, that is actually more biting, like the attack on the 80s like the, or the sort of mulling of the 80s I think is more biting. Yeah. But it's more biting and the reason why I, – I, I quite love Donnie Darko. And the reason why Donnie Darko is a far more engaging film than Southland Tales is because 
the characters, so many human characters in Donnie Darko, and the the, the emphasis on moments in Donnie Darko are on human moments, whereas the emphasis in Southland Tales are on like wacky, uh, like crossfire news bullets and um, and this kind of thing, which is, I mean. The world is clearly fictional when you're watching it because it's pretty over the top and crazy. But at the same point, that's what he wants to highlight, and mm-hmm. I think he does a very good job of it. I think in Donnie Darko, like those human moments, sort of get lost though, and his kind of need to like have a mythology behind things or just over. I mean, especially with his director's cut, oh, which is horrible. Yeah, I, I, I much it's, prefer the original version where it's again it, it's less focus on. The time travel and more focus on um, like his family and, mm-hmm. and 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 what he's going through. Yeah, I mean, I just he, he pushes his ideas right at the forefront at times, but they happen to be things I kind of like. You know, you mentioned Vonnegut, and I'm a big fan of Philip K. Dick. So, I mean, it's just maybe he just needs to, you know, he needs to be his own editor and, and his own, and obviously he's kind of his own worst enemy in that he tries. Too much, and I think as a as kind of a mashup, Southland Tales works really well. I mean, but as a you know cohesive movie that like its messages are clear, or even what happens in the story is clear. That's that's just not there. And even in something like the box, which could have been a very simple premise with you know very terrifying you know, conclusion sort of gets all muddled too because he can't resist throwing in wormholes and water things just or like portals, you know? I mean, that's, that's his thing. A, yeah. You're in all of them. Yeah. You I think he gets too indulgent at times, but I think it works better in Southland Tales. But here's the kind of amazing thing about Richard Kelly is Southland Tales on IMDb. It's as said estimated budget. It's like 17 million. So let's say it's like a $20 million movie. This movie is like like Kurt mentioned, like has pretty astounding world building for such yeah. a small budget. Um, you know, and that's what's sort of fascinating about this film is not that, oh, he's some megalomaniac who was obsessed with his own ideas and just went up his own ass. Like he like man he figured out a way to make a movie for very cheap, <laughs> like that is this huge and epic and strange. And if sure. uh, and like you know, maybe he came upon the possible worst way to lower the budget of your movie, which is to cut it in half and then have release half as a graphic novel series of graphic <laughs> novels. I think in the history of budget cutting, that has was anyone not- has anyone actually read the graphic novels? No, no. I don't. I, I think I think in fact you could pose that question to the world and you'll get the same <laughs> response. I don't think it's even on the Blu-ray, and I was I was kind of stoked to get the Blu-ray because it has his commentary on it. And he takes it. He takes the movie way too seriously. Oh, does it, he? Yeah, it's. I never got that impression watching. I know. It. No, that's neither what do I. I, yeah. I know. That's it's. And it's Maybe just strange for him to like. You know, just like, oh, this is meant to be, you know, an indictment on this, or you know, just he was way too. Um, I don't know, preachy with his commentary. What's uh, um, Maybe it's the same thing because I mean, Donnie Darko. Sort of the same thing happened. He was, you know, like. He made a very interesting movie, and then when you see the director's cut, like he's interested in all the wrong things. You know, maybe he mit- like once again like misunderstood his own movie. Well, I I tend to disagree with that um, to an extent because if he was only focused on 
the time travel aspects in Donnie Darko or whatever. Like, why would he have that lovely scene with, um, like, Drew Barrymore losing her job and just flipping out? And, uh, or uh, my favorite scene in, in all of Donnie Darko is Home Osborne, who here plays um, uh, Robert Frost, the, 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 the Republican presidential nominee. Uh, this, the line in Donnie Darko where he goes, the airline better not fuck us on the shingle match. I think that's just my favorite line in the whole movie. And it's just a wonderfully like little domestic detail. So I, but he the, does but have a knack. He does have a knack for putting that stuff in there. I don't know if there's a ton of it in Southland, but in Donnie no. Darko there is. Um, but I, I feel like the director's cut overwhelms a lot of that with it more does. of the yeah, rules it, it of does. the time, which again... You know, if this is, oh, this is the movie I wanted to make. Well, the movie you wanted to make is less interesting than the movie you ended up making. And I feel maybe. Yeah, you know, it's one of took- the rare instances of studio interference improving the movie. And Southland Tales may be the case as well. From what I've heard of the can cut, which was 20 minutes longer, um, the voiceover <laughs> is pure sarcasm. Like they re recorded the whole voiceover huh. uh, to make it more like neutral. Instead of like a very like um, I don't know like the the goofy guy in Zardoz um, overly narrating it. I, this is kind of the you know twenty first century Zardoz. If we're being perfectly <laughs> honest, I love Zardoz too. So yeah. um, I, I will agree with Jay though that I can't imagine and I'm I, but though I am still surprised that the director's cut even on the Blu Ray never showed up. But like yeah. I can't imagine this movie being an additional what fifteen twenty minutes like. That like this movie, I really like this movie a lot. It is punishingly long. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't disagree there. But I, oddly enough, it actually like Jay was saying by the uh, by the last twenty minutes, he's just glad it's over. I think the movie wonderfully as like a like miasma of images, it wonderfully comes together in the last twenty minutes with the with the Repo Man ice cream truck and the Mega Zeppelin and that just absolutely fascinating three-way dance between Sarah Michelle Gellar, The Rock, and Mandy Moore. Like There are combinations of pop culture that are just insanely hurtled together, like this meta text within the movie that's fantastic. And the uh, Rebecca Del Rio, which to me is the the absolute key to Mulholland Drive. Like, I mean, she's uh, yeah. not quite the Silencio Cub, but that is a fucking awesome rendition of the National Anthem on July 4th at the climax of your movie. I fucking love that. Like the last 20 minutes for me is uh, wonderful. Yeah. As soon as the blimp hits, then the movie really does pick up, gets its second wind. And I really do like the last uh, 20 or so minutes, but yeah. Um, But getting to there, especially once uh, the rock sort of takes off and is he, I can't even remember the exact events. And he's found by the Republican party and then he's, sees Mandy Moore again. And then, (laughs) <laughs> well, be, I, the, the weird thing is that you have two conspiracies going on within the Marxist underground, and then you've got two or three things going on with the Republicans, and they they all do this fancy weaving together. It is more or less seamless. The monkey and the wrench that really convolutes everything is the one woman that works in the U.S. Adent, not not Miranda Richardson, who's pretty great in this, um, although underused. The uh, the woman who is always eating the Cheetos, like she's watching TV. Everyone eats in this movie like they're watching TV, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. But when she 
gets a copy of the movie script that Sarah Michelle Gellar's porn star has written. And she starts to act it out to boxer <laughs> over the phone. That's the the one like non-rational element in the story. Everything else is surprisingly rational. <laughs> but then she starts acting it out. And, of course, it is the screenplay does mirror the uh, the plot of the movie. And this is her way of weaving the screenplay within the movie and the screenplay of the movie together. Um, yeah, and it culminates with, I think, her demanding after she's given all the exposition that the rock needs that he stop what he's doing and let him let her give him a blowjob in the middle of venice beach um fortunately (laughs) the narrator then shoots her after that like it's it's almost godardian it's like you know godard for dummies Uh, this movie yeah good good call (laughs) i i I think it is i think emphasis on the for dummies part but yeah Yeah, yeah. (laughs) i'm not gonna say that i'm not gonna say that you know, Richard Kelly is an unheralded genius, but he is the type of experimental avant-garde pop filmmaker that America has earned in <laughs> 2006. Like, I know. that's what I that's what I kind of love about the yeah, movie. I, I get some sort of perverse thrill out of his stuff. I don't know. I just I, I I'm not I'm not I'm not being condescending. I legitimately enjoy almost every scene in this movie uh, but i must admit that unlike the constant change of pace in paris texas you just keep are into it in this movie you kind of you 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 alternate in and out it's like listening to an album at some times where you 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 almost don't even know this song exists and you kind of blank out while you're listening to it and then like maybe a year later you'll be listening to the album you're like that is the best song on the album how did i not hear that before i that that's kind of the experience that i get when Hmm. uh when I'm watching this movie. Um, but I, I think like The Big Lebowski, like Mulholland Drive, like uh, a lot of these like uh, Wes Anderson movies, more watches, you, you, you let the movie wash over you. Once you c- can just let it do its thing and you're not fighting against it, the movie actually does work on, on its own level of engagement. Exactly what you said um, Patrick about the fifth element where you just stop worrying about the movie and you just let its absurdities penetrate you. <laughs> that's, that's when it, that's when it really, really does work. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, I, okay. What was, <laughs> what is it? Okay, a couple questions about the plot, maybe see if anyone understands it. Um, what's, what's over the loudspeaker as the blimp is exploding? And there's like a big announcement, like a like is that first time I saw it, I thought that was God on the loudspeaker. Like who is on the loudspeaker? Um, who's like, oh, and by the way, no one rocks the cock like Chris just here. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're, uh, Cindy Pizinski or whatever. No, Krista now. Krista now. <laughs> um, yeah. The uh, but yeah, the, there's like two or three lines, like again, like the Big Lebowski that other characters repeat when they may not necessarily have heard. The line. <laughs> this is a Coen Brothers thing, I guess, that he's yeah. stealing. Um, I don't know. I think that's literally the movie announcing it's over. I don't. I don't think that that particular so that- announcer is like textually in the movie. But it's not Justin Timberlake. Um, I think. I think Jay may have gone to dust his things. <laughs> I think the announcer is just a joke. Yeah, it's like the it's like the Dick Clark 
July 4th celebration, right? So, okay. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of stuff in this movie is just failed jokes that <laughs> because because of what surrounds it will will then be analyzed and you know, people will try to figure out what it actually was when it really it was a failed joke. I mean, is it not fair to say that this is a, a I've I've seen it uh, him mention that this is supposed to be a black co- comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would definitely describe this as oh, I mean sure. the, the biggest flaw for me is that the majority of it is just not funny. I think I think uh Justin Timberlake's uh musical number is one of the funniest things. I yeah. absolutely hate that sequence. <laughs> it reminds me of just he's he's so insincere doing it. Like you can almost see his he reminds me of like um um just someone doing air bands or something like it just i can't explain the insincerity he's, behind he's, that performance he's Dieter from saturday night live no he's i think att- that's no he's he's attempting to be detached while doing it and failing miserably to the point where it looks like justin timberlake attempting to look emo- emotionally detached like the whole thing with the beer and spilling the beer and <laughs> That is the worst. I absolutely well, I like he's it is a it, that sequence. A lot of people ask why that sequence is in the movie. I mean, it's basically <laughs> that sequence. Everything else fits in no, place, no, no. but that sticks no, out no, like no, a no. sore thumb. Seriously, people people say like, what what the hell? Like, why that there and whatever? But it, it is he does get high. Like he he injects himself with the with drug, the, yeah. and that's his drug trip. And and it's bad. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> it's just uh, you know. I don't know. It's it, just it, absurd, it, you know. It's it's absurdly bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that wouldn't get the question of why is that in the movie if the movie wasn't two and a half hours long. When when a movie runs as long as this movie runs, <laughs> it is it is open to people saying why is that in your yeah. movie. Yeah, you, you could, mm-hmm. you could you start mentally that. editing it. <laughs> Exactly. If if he had kind of keeping it, keeping <laughs> kept it to a, a manageable and reasonable length, I don't think there would be as much ammo to to be hurled towards this thing as there is. Because every single scene now is under scrutiny by people who are sitting there and wondering when it's going to end. And I don't absolutely hate the movie. Like I, I actually agree. I think that you know I, I actually it reminds me of. Sorry, the opposite. Mr. Nobody kind of reminded me of this, but this at least is is just more out there and more goofy. Right. But I, I think that it just one. I, I don't like the look of it. Like the visuals are just so all over the place. The aesthetic to me is just. Flat, I really. Flat I don't. TV looks. I don't like his aesthetic, like his graphics, how they're really overcomplicated. And they remind me of like late 90s, early 2000s, sort of like, you know, the all over design shirts with dragons on it and stuff or or some sort of like cyber design or he's just he over designs like he like he overwrites and over everything else. Yeah. Um, And you could really see that in the Donnie Darko director's cut with these weird like um video game looking uh sequences but but um 
I, I also think that the casting, it's just one of those things where, like, I understand why he's casting the people he's casting. And in a way, I kind of like it. But in another way, I th- I think we'll just cast people who are right for the role. You know, like, we we do we really have to cast these people, like... Uh, uh, what's her name? Sherry O'Terry and and everyone to to draw some sort of like meta connection to this. It doesn't need it. Like it, we can draw that connection already without the gimmick casting. And I think the gimmick casting hurts the film. Where like there are some people that are fine. I think Sean Scott Williams is that what his name is? Sean Williams Scott. Yeah. <clears throat> right. I think he's good in it. I think The Rock is good whenever he's not trying to be funny. The Rock is is horrible at comedy. Um, really, you don't like his um, like finger, uh, fin- no. no no not the finger I'm thing. The I, I, I love the finger <laughs> thing, but you don't like the um, um, like I'm a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide. Wink, like that kind of thing that that doesn't strike your fancy. I thought that I think he has the delivery for that. Mm-hmm. He, he has no. charisma. He has charisma, and sometimes that can deliver comedy. But he doesn't have comedic timing. I, th- I have the same problem often with Will Smith and his movies, where like he'll just deliver all the jokes wrong, but he's so charming that he sort of gets away with it. The Rock. The Rock is not a comedian. The Rock yeah. is is being put into comedic roles, and and it's being a. It, it would be like taking someone who's not a wrestler and making them you know, perform as a wrestler and seeing right through it. Like I can, you can see right through the rocks, David comedic, Ar- comedic chops. David Arquette won the WCW world championship that way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. That's true. By the way, he was actually the world champion for a little bit, but, um, it, I don't know. I, I just, the main, my main issue with this is the length. Like I said, the first 10 minutes, I was like, kind of into it and the music is really good like the score by Moby is really good and mm-hmm. and but then I I slowly started to remember why this movie didn't work for me and then when you're like you're not even halfway through it and already it's just like okay I I remember now <laughs> what <laughs> and then you know obviously for this I had to stick with it but and I agree, once the blimp comes into play, it does pick up a little bit, but it's just a mishmash, and it's it's too it's over-ambitious, in my opinion. I think it, it while you guys are saying it's, it's a, uh, you know, for a $20 million budget, it does these amazing things, I still think it's over-ambitious, and I think it is hurt by that. Um, and I can only imagine what the 160-minute version is like i mean you see janine garofalo pop up out of nowhere in the middle of this and it's like okay well i guess she was left on the cutting room floor at some point i Um, I do i do wonder if eli roth had any lines or if he was just there to get shot on the toilet i i believe he was just there to get shot on the toilet (laughs) there's a a lot of see this is where i think that um I, either it's the most literal image ever, which I, I, I wouldn't put it past Richard Kelly. There's a lot of toilets in this movie. <laughs> There's like a big <laughs> toilet in the middle of the Marxist thing. And then, yeah, these like scenes like Eli Roth shot on the toilet or whatever. And, and you wonder, is, is that like a gag? Is that a failed joke? Or is that 
like a like a, a metaphor that the country's going to the toilet. I, I don't know. <laughs> it, um, doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it can be. It, it will be whatever the person be, watching it, be it both. sees it as. Yeah. But that that's the one thing that I don't totally understand. I I know I can see that this is satire. I don't understand why it's good satire. I don't think it is. Personally. Well, I, it, it just is. It, it, it ain't like um uh. Jesus, what's the gas humping uh, Citizen Ruth um, satire that is really like pointed and targeted and slays everything it sets its sight on? It's not that kind of satire, but it's more the um, unfocused, uh, weak. <laughs> it's like idiocracy. It's exactly like idiocracy. I, all the criticisms that you lump on idiocracy, you could lump on this. If you make a movie about a horribly retarded culture, which is what both idiocracy and Southland Tales are about, um, it's going to be hard to watch because, like, the, the very nature of that movie is going to make it hard to watch. So, yeah, I, I fully admit that doing something like that is shooting yourself in the foot because, you know, it's it's just it, it's designed to be offensive in that way. But I think that he's he's successful at navigating this particular world, and I think he does hit the right for the most part. He does hit the right tone. Like, I, I like his like look at how absurd this culture is kind of tone it's it's dr strange lovey in 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 that way i i don't think i totally disagree with that yeah <laughs> dr strange love is on a whole other plane than yeah. this like this this to me is just all it's doing is it's it 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 is satire like and that's it, it it's not good satire it just yeah, but you it don't is. find dr strange love to be like incredibly broad at times like just jaw-droppingly broad but no yes. it's the satire I, in, in Dr. Love isn't broad the, it's the I comedy think the broad comedy which is used to undercut the seriousness yeah the performances are broad in Dr. Strangelove right. Yeah. right but I mean to me this is the same as I know Kurt when you were at least initially talking about um, um, Midnight in Paris which I haven't seen yet um, about it being like a a Cole's notes sort of uh, journey through all of these characters and history and how it kind of offended you that you were being talked down to or, or that everyone around right. you in the audience felt so good about themselves because they picked up on all of this stuff. Exactly. That's, what I, that's what I get from this, that it's just all of these obvious satirical beats that will please a lot of people in the theater that, that are well, you know, looking see. looking for a way to to have some sort of uh, you know figure out some sort of puzzle within this movie or something. See, I completely nah. disagree with that. Completely disagree because when I look at Woody Allen at where Woody Allen is in his career to do this movie, I find it pandering and insulting. When I look at someone like Richard Kelly, who's very very young, he's 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 basically shell shocking a young audience with a lot of very broad uh, cultural references. And some of them are pop culture and some of them are higher art or whatever. But the idea is not to say, look at how smart I am, or the idea to say, you will be pleased because you got these references. I believe that the audience that he's making Southland Tales for, it's almost like a, you know, here's a smorgasbord of little samples. And if you strike 
to follow one of those tables, maybe someone will read some T.S. Eliot after watching. That's where I look at the difference between the Woody Allen kind of thing. It's within the context of their careers. I, I, yeah, I would okay. Well, I mean, I would I would agree that I don't think that this movie is self congratulatory. I I feel it doesn't. I mean, again, maybe. I mean, I, I sort of support the death of the author reading where it doesn't matter what Richard Kelly says, but, you know, maybe he thought he was being very pointed and he thought he was being, but it feels too silly to me to be that. I will say, yeah. I, I agree that the comparison as far as very broad, um, easy references, um, but, I, and then I'll, I'll also go ahead and say that I think Sleeper has uh, more biting satire than Southland Tales, if you want to talk about where they are in their careers. Sure, but yeah, and, and Sleeper is far more at the, like, yeah, Woody Allen at the, closer to the beginning of his career. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't a satire that's buried within something that's a little more palatable and accessible, that in itself be more of a success than satire that's buried into a film that's impenetrable and turns people away from it? And yeah, makes but, less than half a million dollars at the box office. Well, sat put it this way: no one went into business to get rich off satire. You go through the history of cinema, and at the bottom of the box office pile will be the entire satire genre. <laughs> like people don't get it's it. Like an and- exception of Starship Troopers. That movie didn't make any money. Did it? I thought no, it was, I thought it was pretty it, big. And a lot of these satires do get. Reevaluated. I'm not suggesting that the world is ready to give the full reevaluation treatment of Southland Tales. Oh shit! But <laughs> Starship Troopers barely it didn't even barely made half of its budget back. Oh wow! Absolutely, and it was a, well, and it was a big expensive movie at the time. Yeah. But I mean, people come around to those kinds of uh, to those kinds of movies in the end. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen uh, in this case, but I do think that the he wanted to make a movie that was American now. And I don't think a smart satire is the right, oddly enough, the right movie. Like I, mm-hmm. I do like his um, 200 cable. Cha- There's literally a scene in the movie when the rock is watching television and he's on like channel 1086 and he's flicking up 1087, 1088. And again, the way everyone eats, food in this movie they they eat it like they have a bowl of like junk food in front of them and they're just consuming it and yeah you you could certainly make the argument well then what value is that to watch <laughs> but i kind of well i, I would i would it. even make the argument that that's not clever <laughs> i mean the channel flipping thing like is that that's really something that's clever that's a, a Conan right. o'brien bit <laughs> no no that's that's on par with like Rocky fourteen in like a, a future. Stay tuned. No, I, I thought you were actually going to go to the Mister Brainwash in uh, the Mister Brainwash movie in the middle of Exit Through the Gift Shop. Hmm. But the thing is with Southland Tales is that he may give the feel of a channel flipping movie, but it does actually. It, it isn't like um, uh, Kentucky Fried movie or something like where it where it's just sketch after sketch after sketch. It is actually a fully connected plot that he's telling in this built universe and I, and I give him credit for pulling it off now he he may not pull it off that you can grab Grasp it all it, at first yeah. viewing but which, I, I think which, there, there is a 
fifth or sixth viewing. Like I really do think part of a director's job is allowing those pieces to be connected. And I would say that the fact that you can't connect them well, unless even when you're reading this along. failed on that note for sure. Yeah, that let's, let, let's go back. The movie that this movie references the most is Kiss, Kiss Me, Me Deadly. Deadly. Yeah. Um, like the car is that the rock drives the same car at one point when he leaves the frost mansion, he gets into the car from kiss me deadly. It's playing at least two, maybe three or four times over the course of the movie. And of course, both of them have this nuclear angle to them. Um, and I believe that kiss me deadly was a, an abject failure in its day and age because there was no ability to rewatch the movie mm-hmm. and I, I i know that when you make a movie in 2006 you you're you're making it in mind that it will have an endless life on dvd and people will it, like donnie darko i mean donnie darko people watched it didn't have a huge audience but the audience it had watched the shit out of that movie and i think that southland tales was constructed in that sense i mean yeah. it was constructed to be this kind of overwhelming puzzle and it's not you don't put this puzzle together to say look at how smart i am i put this puzzle together you put the puzzle together like anyone puts a puzzle together for the enjoyment of handling the pieces and putting them together and that's why i like this movie that's the problem though there's no enjoyment in this like i, I get some enjoyment out of it i don't know i mean i get i get the kiss me deadly you know homage quite a bit i mean like at the time that movie was sort of seen as like a, an allegory for the Cold War and the paranoia and all that kind of stuff. And here he's sort of channeling, you know, uh, the Patriot Act and and terrorism and all the things that we were dealing with at the time. He's not making a successful satire, in my opinion. I mean, it has satiric elements and the the pop culture references and stuff, but I just think it's kind of deliberately surreal and too silly to sort of be taking seriously. I can't, I can't imagine like people having a desire to actively parse this movie. And I think that's no, why. No, 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 no. I, 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 again, I don't think the joy is, is connecting the puzzle and, and saying what the puzzle means. It's actually handling the individual pieces and like a puzzle sure. to overly stretch this analogy. Um, you, 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 you watch a little bit, you come back to it. The movie can and, – and, and I don't think it's an insult to the movie to watch it while you are doing your house cleaning. It's exactly designed to be like that. It <laughs> the is. The movie you put out it's, in the background. It's the, first, it's the first movie that I'm aware of that may or may not have intentionally be designed to take place inside of an environment of distractions rather than the typical movie theater, which – you hope <laughs> not these days in the multiplex, but you hope you can watch the movie with a complete focus. This movie actually works when you're focused on maybe a few other things. I, I it, it think just, it seems to me that a lot of the the evidence that's being brought up here is in in favor of the movie outside of beyond the the you know I f- just find it entertaining because of uh, a personal connection or, you know, it's goofy or whatever. It, it seems a lot of it is just so shallow. Like the, the kiss me deadly thing. What, what about that is interesting other than there's an opportunity for uh, uh, some cinephiles in the audience to go, Oh, kiss me deadly is playing on the background in the TV there. I don't understand how that is, is evidence of this being, 
in any like intelligent in any way. Well, again, it, it, it it's it's intelligent in the way that um, that this is a movie that's constructed around the aesthetic of channel hopping, and now you're dropping in. But how is that intelligent? Well, the concept of of um, you know a media driven society and, and channel hopping and the internet and like this is all stuff that's pretty well, basic stuff. No, isn't but it? I but but I, I I'm not going to say that it's world alteringly brilliant, but I do like the idea that it's it's one thing if it was just all crass like reality TV stuff. If it was just like Jerry Springer and um, uh, survivor and, and all this. But I, I do like the fact that he's saying that all of these pieces, these random pieces in the channel hop, you've, you've got stuff like you can bounce kiss me deadly up against end of days, which I, I mean, is the rocks character's name, the Arnold Schwarzenegger from that awful Satanist movie. And, <laughs> and I like the idea that it's just a, it's a collection of, 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 just random cultural fragments that no one seems to be able to latch on to anymore. I'm not saying it's new or original or, 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 or earth-shaking, but I do believe it's wonderfully realized within the nature of this movie. Now, whether or not that movie will put you off or not is another thing, but I think it's yeah. in a way designed to put you off in a weird way. Which can be annoying for some people. Like That's kind of why I don't like the Tim and Eric movie. I just I feel like that movie is kind of designed to piss people off. <laughs> and I just don't find that funny. Whereas, whereas I find this very funny. Um, but I don't know. I just, I, it, I appreciate mashups. I mean, I think, I think there's some talent that goes into creating a mashup. Um, but it, again, it's borrowing elements and it's not completely original. Um, and to what end? Hmm. To what end? Like I, 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 I under, I understand. I, Jay saying, you know, the the idea behind mashups, you sh- you want to maybe recontextualize things sure. when 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 Quentin Tarantino takes the theme song to Across 110th Street and puts it in Jackie Brown, he's commenting on Jackie Brown and he's commenting on 110th Street. When Richard Kelly puts Kiss Me Deadly in this movie, he's not really commenting on it. Right. Um so no, it's I just definitely throwing it there. in a blender and. See, I think you the know. pleasure, yeah, I think the pleasure of the movie is just its form, and if you can't get pleasure from that, you can't. And I, again, I wouldn't blame anyone, but I, I just think sort of the um, sort of loose way that that the things are put together without meaning, um, and with ju- and that's that is the enjoyment of the movie. The actual details of the satire could have been any number of things that really do feel just as broad as something you'd see on, you know, Conan, cause Conan O'Brien has this thing where he'll go and he'll look at a different channel and he'll make invent channels. And the whole thing is mocking how many channels cable has, you know, like these are all very broad things you could see on SNL, which is again, why he cast all those people. Um, I don't think the actual content of the satire is as important as sort of the form um, and the way that, and the way he just sort of spreads them all out, uh, and I, I think that it is well achieved in, cre- in you know playing with the form, and but I don't mm-hmm. think it achieves it, it. It's well achieved as far as adding up to something. Right. You're a smart man, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. I that agree. was well said. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. That was very well said. So I mean, I, I uh, yeah, I would never again. I never blame anyone for not liking this movie because the pleasures I find in it are 
you know, are all just in, in form, um, not necessarily in content, you know? Yeah. It's funny, and you can separate the word form from the word craft because it's kind of ugly. Yes. <laughs> as a movie, but as but but as an exercise of form, it tends to work. And usually those two are somewhat in, indistinguishable, but in here they're actually fully separated. Even the box was pretty ugly looking, I thought. I mean, that sort of cloudiness, that fog over the lens kind of look. I didn't I didn't really care for that either. The DVD, like with the with the with the uh, ribbons of different like star faces, no, it and... means the movie, the box. Yeah, not the, the, <laughs> the box. <laughs> yeah, the the movie, the box. I so just... we could talk about that and be talking about two different I, things. And I, and still I do think conversation again, like 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 all comedies, which I do sincerely believe this is. Um, if you think that they are failed jokes, that there's no way that you're that reevaluating the yeah, movie. Explaining is really the joke, do it for not you. resurrect the joke. So mm-hmm. I, you know, this isn't a movie. There are some movies you don't get it at first. Yeah, maybe check it out again. Like there's no way I'd say, hey Jay, maybe you should try it again, because a huge part of the enjoyment of this movie, the thing that gets you through the fact that you have no characters that you really care about, that there are no storylines that are arced in traditional, you know, can, ways that are easy to follow. Like what gets you through it is that, I mean, at least find I should say what gets me through it is I do find it legitimately funny. I think when Amy Poehler and I forget who the other guy is, when they're <laughs> pretending hilarious. to be arguing, he's like, his dick was 500 inches. Like, <laughs> like there's a lot of this movie. I do legitimately find very funny. Um, Same. So, and the silliness of it, I do find funny, but if, yeah, if you can't find it funny, then it's just that's never gonna be for you. And Jay, you find Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie funny, correct? And I just don't at all. So, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe it just I mean, comes down to that subjective, you know, taste. If Tim and if Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie was two and a half hours long, that might change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it does. <laughs> If if the movie if Southland Tales didn't really have some knockout final images and really come together at the end, I, I I don't even think I would be defending it. It's it's a for me the it's a classic case of it's 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 a struggle to get through that middle. There's definitely parts in it, although there's there's lots of little Easter eggs along the way, little fun things to chew on or whatever. But um, but the I think the ending is so strong in the movie visually that. Uh, when I come out, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I took the uh, the journey or whatever. Also, I think the music helps a lot, and that's actually something I always thought about with Donnie Darko. Because I, when I got the score and I just listened to the score, I'm like, I sort of realized, oh, you could put the score in anything, and it would make it very meaningful. And you know, like, like I think, I'm not a big I think at, that's actually a, a big point that that score helps this movie along quite a bit in mm-hmm. making it seem like it's saying a lot. Well, I, I think th- I think the score is better than this film. Okay, for example, when okay when uh, Sean William Scott and Sean William Scott are on a floating ice cream truck and they're going <laughs> friendly fire, I forgive you. Like that is ridiculous, and I have no emotional attachment to it. And there's nothing in this movie has grounded me to make that a meaningful or cathartic moment. But right. because of the music playing, I always somehow get a little moved by it. And like it literally is just the power of Moby's music. Um, That's the I, power I, of Moby. 
which in Southland Tales is okay, but in Steven Spielberg's War Horse, people would uh, flip their lids. <laughs> well, I'm going to go ahead and guess that War Horse has more defenders than Southland Tales. Probably. Yeah, but no, yeah, I, 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 I definitely it's, fall it's, into that. It's not Jay. that stereotype in that i won't even see warhorse <laughs> like that's I, I know which camp i'm in on this and i'm unashamedly in my camp and i i can't even bring myself as much as i love spielberg to bring myself to watch something like warhorse because i don't believe there's an i don't know i would rather something be bleakly ironic than treacly sentimentality which is the reason why i like something like southland tales and don't like something like goodwill hunting or dead poet society or those movies can never work for me um but something like this something i tend to like overblown absurdity and this is Mm -hmm. this is that Uh, that being said i don't like the box at all i i I just Eh, i was doesn't doesn't do it for me I, I never did see that one. Um, do, you, do, any, do either of you know, uh, any of you know, I guess, what he's if he's doing anything next, if he has another? He's got something in the works. It might be a horror movie. I'm not sure, but he's working with Eli Roth on something called Corpus Christi that might come out this year or the year after. Not exactly sure on the details. but Yeah, there's nothing on the IMDb he, after he the He seems like the kind of director who might accidentally stumble. I mean – you know, Kurt, you really, you really like Donnie Darko, and I've I've read defenses of it that make me sort of understand people who really like it, despite me not really liking it myself. But like, I feel like, you know, it's any any moment he'll or like it, it feels very possible he'll stumble upon the right combination of inspiration and casting or whatever, and he'll accidentally make a really good movie. Well, I believe uh, it's not that I know any of the process or whatever that goes into these movies, but I believe if he had an exceptionally talented film editor, and, and I don't mean just someone making the snips and tightening the movie, I mean someone that he goes out and shoots his however many thousand feet or megabytes or whatever worth of film... And then comes back, and here's the screenplay, here's all the dailies, edit this into something coherent, and then he walks away. <laughs> I think that the movie would actually, because that's kind of what made Donnie Darko good, was the fact that he was forced to chop things down to right down to the bone sure. and not be overly indulgent and, and let the mystery work um, because there's literally parts of the movie missing rather than over explaining everything uh, and making it more uh, distancing for the audience. Um, like, I mean, the, the thing that fails the box for me is that the box is, there's no mystery to the box. It's an incredibly obvious story that you could do in a 30 minute twilight zone. Oh episode. yeah. It totally works. And, as and then twilight he decides zone. to overly complicate it. Um, yep. Like I, I think Donnie Darko and, um, Southland tales are by their very nature overly complicated. They're not simple stories at their heart. They're really complicated, uh, like plotting. And and in this, the box, it's like, what would you do? You can sum up the box in a sentence. And and then he just tries to overly like muddy the waters just to just to blow it up into a a ninety minute feature. I, that that's what didn't work for me. Whereas Southland Tales is gonzo from the get go. Like if there's no, you know, I just, I just pictured, I just pictured Richard Kelly as uh, James L. Brooks in uh, modern romance. And like, he needs to find 
his editors like Albert Brooks and Bruno Kirby or something, you know, like, cause I could just picture, I could just picture Richard Kelly being like, no, those footsteps need to be bigger or we got to, you know, make this part obvious or whatever. And we can't cut that out. No, we got to leave that in there because that explains this thing. And, you right. know, and then you want someone at the other side, side of the table who's super practical. It's like, this works. I get it. Everything right. else is gone. Moving on to the next scene. Well, if 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 his next thing, uh, Eli Roth is working as a creative producer, that might help. I hope I so. Mean, I, you know, I think Eli Roth is pretty good at stripping things down to the essentials. Yeah, and and yeah, not overly complicating. Like none of his films are are, are particularly convoluted. They're pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure my mom will see Corpus Christi because that's where she was born. So I can convince her to see a Richard Kelly movie. So where <laughs> where is Corpus Christi? Just it's in, in Texas. Texas. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's by the. To bring it all full circle. By Paris. It's by the Gulf of Mexico. It's right by Paris. No, it's yeah, it's it's very close to the bottom, like by McAllen. It's not too far from the border. So if you want to go sneak some weed, that's that's the way to go. So do we have anything final to say? about Southland Tales. You want to give it a rating or does this movie defy rating? <laughs> uh, I, I want to finally say that uh, the, the probably the biggest misstep for me is even though you can sort of see where he's going but what it detracts from the film like way, way outweighs anything it might add to it in meta content is casting Kevin Smith as like a wizard. <laughs> It's literally like the dumbest thing. They did that in uh, Live in a Free movie. or Die Hard, didn't they? They cast him as they did like the computer. exact same thing yeah. in Die Hard Four. Yeah. No, they no they cast him as a. Ha- I mean, they didn't fucking cast him as a wizard. Like he <laughs> looks, he looks like Gandalf in this, except he looks like Kevin Smith tried to look like Gandalf. And well, actually, like, I like the cutaways to his he's face nodding. Though. Supposed <laughs> to be modeled after Karl Marx. That's that that was the template. For that, and he's in the he's in the uh, like Jenny Von Westphalian room or whatever, which is the which is like Karl Marx's wife. You know what I mean? Like it's right. it's all very like overdone. <laughs> overdone is the word, and it's funny because Kelly loves to indulge himself in these like exposition bombs. It's like we've gotten far enough. We're not going to work any harder. We're just going to have someone come in and explain it. And why not have Kevin Smith, who does the exact same thing in Clerks and Chasing Amy? <laughs> so see why that, not? that right there to me is a a sign of a complete lack of self control or discipline. The fact that he casts Kevin Smith in a role where he's wearing a ton of makeup, and it doesn't even have to be Kevin Smith. But he's just doing it because he's friends with them and because he wants some sort of meta connection. And it's completely against any sort of, you know, positive uh, end result in the film. Like, why would you not cast an actor in that role? Well, because it's it's like bleakly ironic. Like, is this exposition? Well, okay. I think he's being this exposition of a character that has to come in and say. Oh, there was a time rift, and we sent monkeys through, and then we decided to send an actor through, and here's the body of the actor. Like, none of this matters to anything. And so think, it's, 
it, it's like that because it doesn't matter. I think that it's sort of I think he was sort of taking the I think he was sort of taking the piss when he cast like Curtis Armstrong and Wallace Shawn and yeah. Zelda, like all of these super familiar people, but well, super familiar everybody to familiar. like a small everybody set is. of people. No, no, super familiar to people who just like, even they don't know them by name, but they know that they saw them in a comedy from the 80s, exactly. you know? And but, I think that's... A, a director who um, uses casting to, to for that purpose, to, to take the piss out of something or to wink or whatever to me that seems just irresponsible oh, i mean no, no. I absolutely within, agree. The, within the body of this film fine because the whole film is kind of a joke yeah <laughs> but in general as a director it seems to me like it's a really sort of shallow irresponsible move to to treat your casting with yeah, yeah, such yeah. Fla- I'm, not, like, I'm not hiring you as an actor i'm hiring you as an image like that as, insulting. A, okay. as an inside joke right 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 yeah. right right i mean yeah i mean i i do think he, he's like commenting on distracting casting and all that but i mean it's just it does it's it, <laughs> again i think the bad far outweighs the good and i don't and so i mean i agree with you 100 percent, jay that it's a, not a sign of a good director i'm and just it, saying right it's it's funny like to think that he's commenting on on um you know uh what did you just say commenting on strange casting or whatever yeah, yeah. It, it makes me think like what is he not commenting on in this movie <laughs> like every every single choice he makes in this movie is a comment yeah. on something yeah is it is that it a is bad totally choice true. or is it or is he being clever are, <laughs> his, are his bad choices a well, comment on if you bad listen choices? to his commentary oh, no, has, that's has, exactly what it is it's has, just like in, over commenting on everything has has anyone ever read um nick hornby's how to be good not that one. No. Uh, the, the the one character in that book is writing this novel on shit he hates, like just stuff that annoys the hell out of him, <laughs> and it, it it turns into this fifteen hundred page manuscript that he can't even go back and edit down because he hates the book on the things that he hates because it's so like long, and that's kind of. Richard Kelly's Southland Tales and that he's he's piled up all of these things and he's like, holy shit, this is three hours long. What the hell do I do now? Well, just leave most of it. Um, I, he spent a year re-editing it. I, I don't know how. Like, Sony gave him a couple million dollars after they spent I don't know how much on it at, at Cannes and I mean it was acknowledged that it was in rough form then but um, they spent a lot of money to to fix it up, and then they obviously realized after it was, and I'm air quoting, fixed up, uh, they that it was unreleasable, unmarketable, and whatever. So they didn't really do anything with it. But I, I again, I if you're gonna make a a, a, a big gigantic uh, mess of a movie, I can appreciate it on that level, and I will take this type of movie over a boring stuck to formula whatever um i guess i defend southland tales because it it's not as offensive as i feel people make it out to be sure i don't know (laughs) man this is the way this is what this is the way the episode ends not with a bang but with with a a whimper (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I said, I, I don't totally hate the movie. Like I, I 
can kind of, I'm on board with some of the stuff you guys are saying, but it just seems like, um, it's, it's like a, a offensive misuse of resources or something. <laughs> it just like, I wonder if he was in the editing room and trying to save his movie, if he regretted at all casting his, his entire film with <laughs> jokes, like it, he, maybe at that point he might've been like, you know what? Maybe I should have actually took casting seriously and not used it as a, a wink to my audience. Then I wouldn't have to, you know, struggle so hard to save this thing in the editing room. It, it just feels to me like it's, um, I'm not entirely sure. It's not as clear with this movie what the end goal was as something like Freddie Got Fingered or even the Tim and Eric movie. Like, this movie feels like. Well, because those movies were written by comedians, then mm-hmm. this one wasn't. Right, but but this this movie is still trying to do comedy, and and if it fails, it fails. Um, I mean, The Rock is a wrestler, and he's trying to act. I mean, I guess that's appropriate, but I I just don't understand what the 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 goal with this film is, other than to indulge himself and do whatever he wants and see what what he can do like it feels like you're talking about like comparisons here it's like he's rain man and he needs tom cruise to come in and say (laughs) we're gonna take all of your abilities and use it in vegas to win us a shitload of money like he he needs the tom cruise to come in and sort of how can i ask uh, you a question how many megalomaniac directors have ever actually met that tom cruise person who does that for them like like, I mean, M. Night Shyamalan drove himself into the ground like, you know, like there's not, you know, it's not even like Richard Kelly has had a big success. But uh, uh, other than, I guess, sort of the strong cult following of Donnie Darko. Well, Donnie Darko actually did transcend its own cult following. It's it sold a ton of DVDs like it. it, it whoever owns that movie made a. Right, but I mean, really I, large profit on that does, movie. But he doesn't have a sixth sense, you know. He doesn't have a signs. He doesn't have some no. kind of. He doesn't have a. He's not George Lucas. He doesn't have a Star right. Wars, you know. But like, I can't think. I, what are some direct? I guess. But twenty guess, million dollars in the scheme of things, twenty million dollars isn't in in the movie world. It's I know. not a ton of money. So he hasn't. It's not like anyone's given him. Um, you know, eighty million dollars, and said, uh, "You know, go hog wild with that." I, 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 I highly doubt anyone will. I, I just his three films, um, by by their very design, are not designed to appeal to a wide audience. That's for sure. Uh, Especially Donnie the Darko box. was a bit of a fluke. The box yeah, well, got the like box the worst was cinema a, was score an absolute, ever. Though it was a concept conceptually, marketing wise, the box is a no brainer. He just turned yeah. it into an uh, an audience unfriendly version <laughs> of that particular story. Um, Gave it he, the real Richard Kelly spit shine there. <laughs> yeah. he, to me, within this type of filmmaking, like he feels like the Kevin Smith of this like uh, pseudo intellectual sort of complex um, filmmaking. Like I put something like Primer up against this or up against Donnie Darko and there's no comparison there. It, it feels to me yeah. more, more like he's using his, the complexity of his thought process and his, his uh, form and everything 
to obscure his faults. And it, it, that complexity in itself is like right. the, the Hail Mary I don't yeah. totally respect. Yeah, I, I can agree with that to some extent. I feel, I feel like he's definitely maybe have read like a Cliff's Notes version of like Michio Kaku's, you know, physics books or whatever. You know, like he's read well, this like a quick introduction and sort of applied those elements into his movies and it's not no, no it's it's that scene in uh the coen brothers a serious man where uh michael stuhlbarg is is grading the uh the asian physics student <laughs> and he's and the asian student says i understand the analogies and uh stuhlbarg is like yeah but you're you're here to learn the math the analogies are just easy <laughs> stories to to help you along you're here to actually learn the math and yeah i mean primer is an excellent example because primer was written by a guy who was um a electrical engineer (laughs) before he was a filmmaker and actually did this on the side whereas it feels like you know kevin smith and 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 richard kelly are are comic book nerds (laughs) you know it's a different it's It's, there's a reason why they're friends it's it's a it's a different angle right And, and and i i mean i guess i'm saying that there's room for both but uh Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, 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 given you know, if if I had to pick, uh, of course I would take Primer over um, over Southland Tales. But my, I, would I, guess pick, my I would pick is Primer that, over most things. Yeah, yeah but uh, totally. my argument is that uh, just because I would take one over the other, I, I I find that Southland Tales is not without its substantial charms. Yes. Agreed. I, I think mm-hmm. that the the. Um, low budget um science hard science fiction uh genre or whatever you would want to call it is very similar to the horror genre in that it's a brand of film that you can make and although it might not appeal to the broad audience there will always be the people who will will love it um with all of its flaws and People, horror fans love the, the gore and the kills and the, the science fiction fans love the societal commentary, <laughs> the, what, whatever they can pull from it. <laughs> I mean, the, the references and the um, whatever, like there's there's all, if, I, I don't I actually like this more than I like some of the recent like Another Earth Ugh. I would take this over another Earth. Well, in a, what about in a second. what about uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pi, which definitely plays in the same territory as this? I, I like Pi, um, mm. but I mean, I, I just think it seems like there's like a, almost a lack of discernible taste, just like horror. You know, where everyone loves anything with gore, with this, these low budget sci fi films. They just seem to get a pass. I'll, well, the, no, no. If, I like this movie precisely because it is in poor taste. Okay, that's a different. No, 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 there's a there's a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference of saying I just want to watch gore, and I like this movie because I find it to be, um, I don't know, like saucy or something about the way he's just relentlessly made. A, a channel hopping movie. Yeah. I, I like that, and that's totally different from um, just saying, "Oh yeah, we're gonna 
drop this hammer into this guy's head and there's going to be brains. Like, like I, I don't, I don't understand why people like horror. I like horror movies, but I don't understand the I like it just purely for gore. I, yeah. I think that this movie. Were, like I like its bad taste not because it's showing me gore, but because it's a movie about bad taste in bad taste. I, I like that. I, I, I that works. For I've me. always kind of wondered what would it be like if John Waters directed Blade Runner. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I don't know. That's uh, that's kind of the angle I approach this movie with. Just keeping that John behind. Waters. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> just something kitschy and you know. Manic and ridiculous. I don't. I don't quite see that connection, but I kind of get what you're going uh, with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I again, I, I I completely hear where Jay is coming from. Um, I just I feel that maybe the emphasis on uh, the the ideas which are half-assed they are and is you know is maybe the wrong way to approach the movie. Um, and I, but if if the comedy doesn't do it for you, and if just the mere form of channel surfing doesn't do it for you, like you know, for me and Kurt and Jim, then there's just no way to approach the movie because it's not there's there's no meat. But uh, I genuinely really love the style and the tone, uh, which again I think captures something very specific um, in both its references and its approach to them uh, that I've never seen in another movie. Um, so it's. I think it's kind of special. UHF. <laughs> UH, UHF. I mean, I was. I was talking specifically again about sort of the college stoner ideas and the sort of. I I have read a Kurt Vonnegut book and I have you know I browsed. I, I looked up the Wikipedia entry on Marxism and I, you know, and like yeah, and the fucking War on Terror's bullshit and yeah, and man. man, Patriot Act. Fuck that. Like that sort of. Um, this movie, entire movie, is taking place inside the head of Wiley Wiggins, inside of Dazed and Confused. Exactly. exactly <laughs> totally. <right>. Good call. <laughs> that was that's how he pitched it. <laughs> and uh, again, I would be fine with that if it was half as long. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, I, that's I the, the main beef from me. Yeah. Okay. I, I can oh, appreciate yeah. certain elements of it. So I think All on right. that note, we will. Close up Southland Tales. More time spent on that movie than anyone was. I'm sure Richard Kelly is happy. That, that is awesome, and it makes me happy. Yeah. Um, we'll end up we'll end up spending a year cutting 15 minutes from this podcast. <laughs> That's right. It will we'll be do. released with the three graphic novel prequels <laughs> uh, to the to the show. They're uh, they're available, and I will on, I will provide um, a commentary for it. <laughs> On one of the various online micro presses. Um, so, uh, next movie club podcast will hopefully take place sometime in May, definitely before summer. Good time. Um, and uh, we're going to mix it up and uh, look at a little bit. Um, well, I don't know what the theme is of this movie other than driving. Um, we have John Frankenheimer's uh, Elmore Leonard adaptation, uh, 52 Pickup, which stars Roy Scheider and Anne Margaret. Um, and uh, Walter Hill's uh, The Driver, which stars Ryan O'Neill and uh, Bruce Dern. So, 
Yeah. Hopefully, um, we will uh, all be back for that. Uh, is there any final thoughts or anything before we close out the show? Jay, do you want to plug all of your websites and projects and all the usual thing at the end? Um, I will. I can plug filmjunk.com, uh, documentary, thedocumentaryblog.com, and I guess um, stay tuned to twitter.com slash time machine doc for upcoming news and announcements. And you should also say that Beauty Day is coming out on DVD very, very soon. Right. It's actually, you can actually order it at, uh, on filmjunk.com right now for purchase. And it's officially coming out February 28th in Canada. But it's cheapest to buy it directly from Film Junk. 15 Bones. That's a great nice. movie. Well yeah. worth it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, go visit uh, yeah, visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com and my Twitter is Instant Jim. I think that might be it. I'm I'm quite a fan of the letterbox, which uh few of us are diving into as well. So hopefully once that gets, you know, publicized or goes public, everyone can join a join us over there too. All right. And uh in addition to directorsclubpodcast.com, I've begun having a sort of a um, movie, sort of a just a log of keeping track of every movie I watch, and also sort of putting in the entries of all the movies I watched over the past year. Um, that's over at Marthy, Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot WordPress dot com. Clever. It Love is it. A, a little little cult zone there, uh, and yeah. of course, everyone listening to this podcast should bombard Patrick with Facebook friend requests <laughs> yes, to get should. in on the uh, the the little. Um, uh, campfire circle of uh, commentary and fifth element quotes uh, that happened there. Um, my name is Kurt Halfyard, which I didn't introduce myself at the beginning of the show. I know you've waited all this time just to get <laughs> my name. Uh, I can be found at row3.com and um, lending myself out to a inordinate number of guest spots on other podcasts uh, and also doing video content for thesubstream.com and writing for twitchfilm.net Thank you for listening everybody. This has been episode 24 and adieu. Cheers. All right.